key pillars of human life, causing pain and cheese. Uh, yes. <laughs> Do not cause cheese. I'm Ben McKenzie. Welcome to Pratt Chat, the monthly Terry Pratchett Book Club podcast. Each month, we discuss one of Terry Pratchett's books with a special guest. This month, I'm going to need just another sec or two to come up with a joke about the title, Thief of Time. I think we can help you with that. And our guest is journalist, amongst other things, Ben Riley. Welcome, Ben. Hello. Thank you for having me. It's very exciting. It's very nice to have you here. We've wanted you on the show for a very long time. That is very lovely. It's very good to be here. I was thinking about the fact that given the topic of today's book, Liz, this is in some ways bringing our friendship full circle. Uh, when true. When Liz and I uh, <laughs> first met many years ago, we were working together and we had one day a week on a Wednesday when we would work together in the office, sit next to each other, and it became known as Time Travel Wednesdays <laughs> because we would distract each other from doing work by teasing out increasingly stupid uh, time travel paradoxes. Uh, so the fact that we're now talking about this, I guess, means that our once this is done, our friendship is over. Is that how this works? Yeah, or continue starts again. Ah, uh, yes, yeah, of course. Reincarnated. Yeah. We're going to wake up and it's going to be Wednesday. This time I'll be there. Because <laughs> uh, I, I want to join in on Time Travel Tuesday. <laughs> it was great. And it was so consistent. It, it wasn't just one. Also just speaks to how good we were at distracting each other, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and we got all our work done, so, you know, it, it just all works out sometimes. It does. Uh, sometimes, yes. The procrastination, as this book demonstrates, is sometimes very good for getting things done. Um, I get the impression you are a big Pratchett fan from way back. I am, yes. I got into the Discworld books as a teenager. I think, I can't remember how. I mean, I was always just a kind of, like, a fan of kind of series and, like, the idea of going into a bookshop every time and seeing like all of the spines lined up in this series that kept coming out that I'd never read before just became increasingly tantalizing and I eventually just had to read them. The idea of them probably turned me off a bit at first because like the idea of kind of comedy fantasy just was immediately like, oh, I don't know if that's for me. But when I think about what I love about the Discworld, I mean, they are very funny, they are fantasy novels, but I just think almost no one has a kind of view of the world a view of people that aligns with my own as much as Terry Pratchett's does. Um, so when I think about the books, I think about them as these kind of funny, but also interesting and complex and moving explorations of what it is to be a person as kind of grand and, and uh, maybe a bit wanky as that sounds. Accurate though, I think. It's the truth. Well, it's not the truth, it's the time, it's but time. you know. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, so you, you were not a fantasy reader when you started? No, I, I, I did read a bit of fantasy as a kid. I think it was more specifically the combination of comedy fantasy that was that felt like a level of nerddom that I didn't maybe quite feel comfortable admitting to myself that I might like. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, part of the reason why I've been so excited to be on this show is that I just have so much to say about Discworld and never get a chance to talk to anyone about it. And I think that that's true for a lot of other things in my life as well. So, like video games and comic books and things that I, I do sort of shamefully by myself. So, I think... 
I just need to come to grips with the fact that I actually do like a lot of really nerdy things and comedy fantasies, probably uh, the least of it. <laughs> I feel like I don't ask this often enough of our guests who are writers, but has Pratchett's writing been an influence on you? That's a good question. I mean, I, I don't, perhaps not in his style, because I, I don't write fiction, but I would say in terms of his moral view of the world, it absolutely has been. I think that there were a few kind of key things that I really loved as a kid that the older I get, the more I realize they have this continuing influence on on my ethics and my and my morals. And, and Discworld is really a key part of that. I think the ways that Pratchett is able to see kind of sitting side by side in everyday people, both a boundless capacity for kindness and empathy, but also the same capacity for cruelty is is something that really, really kind of resonates with me and drives my politics, drives my desire to engage with the world in a way that is about being what you do, I suppose, and kind of being hopeful always that while people can be horrible, horrible people to each other, that's also where the good in the world is. That's a beautiful way to sum it up. Yeah. I was just nodding. I was like, Wait, that's not getting recorded. Sorry. Uh, it's, a, it's a good one for the video. Po- There's no video podcast. Um, footnote, Elizabeth nods. like <laughs> The accompanying podcast. Yeah. Uh, we, we don't want to get to the stage where we have to do a commentary podcast on the commentary podcast. That would be. All right. Well, look. Let's get into it because it is a long book and we've got a lot of listener questions, which was very exciting. Thank you to all of those who sent those in. We're going to try and cover as many of them as we can, but we won't have time for them all probably. But we'll start in our traditional manner by reading the blurb. Time is a resource. Everyone knows it has to be managed. And on Discworld, that is the job of the monks of history who store it and pump it from the places where it's wasted, like underwater. How much time does a codfish need? to places like cities, where there's never enough time. The construction of the world's first truly accurate clock starts a race against, well, time, for Lucy and his apprentice Lobsang Lud, because it will stop time, and that will only be the start of everyone's problems. Thief of Time comes complete with a full supporting cast of heroes and villains, yetis, martial artists, and Ronnie, the fifth horseman of the apocalypse who left before they became famous. It's a hell of a spoiler in the blurb. Totally. I, I hadn't reread the blurb, and when that's revealed in the plot, I had completely forgotten about it. And so I'm <laughs> I'm glad that I that I didn't read that. Same, like because that was a big reveal, like three quarters of the way through the book. Yeah. That's the whole whole thing that he like delicately sort of laced through. I had a weird experience with this because, as I think I mentioned last episode, this is one that somehow I had never read before. I just oh. weirdly had skipped over it in my original reading of the books. Or had you? <laughs> well, well, maybe it got, I don't know, maybe that, that bit you, of history like, got shattered or something. I don't know. Of, yeah. But I have sort of absorbed a lot about it reading about other stuff in the Discworld. So there were like a couple of the big plot elements I did know, even though I hadn't even read the book. And I was kind of disappointed because I was like, oh, I feel like I'm reading this book for the first time, but I'm not getting the benefit of reading it for the first time because I knew about Ronnie. I knew about uh, Lobsang and Jeremy. And there were lots of little things that I didn't know. But a lot of the big reveal stuff I had spoiled for me, basically, by myself, not by someone else, to be clear. It's really weird because I have read this before and it's one of the ones that I really enjoy, but I'd forgotten a lot of the big things. They came as surprises to me again hmm. or like i hadn't remembered which of the th- pathways it had gone down like the the 
the um Jeremy Lobsang thing, I was like, is it going to be this or is it going to be this other thing? Because I, I hadn't got it clear in my mind. So, yeah, it's like you had the opposite experience. It's probably one of the ones I've read more frequently. I can't remember the last time I, I read it because I think I, my Discworld reading sort of went in two big patches. I read them all a lot as a teenager and then into my early 20s and then I kind of didn't read them for a while and then when Terry died, it, it kind of caused me to, to go back to Discworld and, and really... Mm reinvigorated my love for them so it's probably been a few years i knew it very well with the exception of a few key plot elements that were surprises to me again yeah i I had quite a different relationship to it this time than i think i do in my mind or or have had in the past i'll be interested to talk about that as we go along yeah Mm. well i mean and it is quite an epic we're in the period of pratchett where he's writing really long epic books and he's still writing in his we talk about this a lot in the podcast his really cinematic style it felt pretty good. I, I think there were maybe one or two bits where I was like, oh, I got this, but I don't know if I would have felt that if I hadn't been spoiled for a couple of the reveals that I was kind of sitting waiting to happen because <laughs> I knew about them in advance. I don't think so. It's big, but it doesn't feel long. Yeah. I could have happily splashed around another 100 or 200 pages of this book. Yeah. As a fan of the podcast, I was, I was listening recently to an episode I think you had Craig Hildebrand Burke on, and he, mm. he his mm. kind of summation of his favorite parts of Discworld was really eerily similar to my own and i think it's this period from say like jingo through to about thud i think is is really my my favorite era of the series and it's just kind of hit after hit after hit and so with this book in particular i feel like in some ways it feels a bit like a throwback to earlier Discworld novels in that kind of like really high fantasy style that he moves away from a little bit but at a time when he's writing kind of at the height of his powers and so i i like that feel in the book Mm. There's a confidence in it through all of it. I like that you you talk about it as high fantasy there, because this is one where I really strongly felt that he's really treating those high fantasy concepts more like you would expect to see them treated in science fiction. Mm -hmm. And one odd thread through this book that I kept noticing was how modern it felt. Like, there's a lot of references to current science. There's a lot of bits where characters say things where I stopped for a second and I was like, how does that work on Discworld? Like, why do you know that word? That doesn't make any sense, but it makes a good joke. And this is the thing, you know, in comedy, you kind of get away with a certain amount of that. Uh, and I think this book maybe stretches the limits of it a little bit, but I still enjoyed all those sort of high fantasy or, or big sci-fi concepts. On on the words, I found it interesting that the word cigarettes exists, but not the word cigar. <laughs> Within, like, a short space of time, it's like, oh, close but no, like, round thing that you smoke, oh, and then, like, right. moments later, he's smoking a cigarette and calling it a cigarette. Which is, I mean, and we do know cigars do exist. Like, they're mentioned. It's There is some weird stuff like that. But, again, this is also the book that puts in a plot excuse for any weirdness you might have noticed. It does, yes. Which is which is great. But, look, let's- So, that X-Men movie that fixes the crap X-Men movie. <laughs> By erasing it, you mean? <laughs> yeah. I don't know what movie you're talking about, Liz. I don't think it exists. Uh, <laughs> Good attitude. Uh, yeah. Let's get into the plot, because we've got a lot of plot to get through. Several things get set up at the start of this book. We kind of have three or four main threads through the book. Mm-hmm. Three main ones, and then there's like a minimal one. And they're, But they're all very tightly intertwined. Unlike in some Pratchett books where some of the threads feel very different in this one i I think at no point i was like how are these things going to join up like it was always clear that they were part of the same big story we've got um a very a minor thread that starts at the beginning 
uh, for when the Eternally Surprised and the story of how the History Monks came to be. And it, this book really fleshes out and also leans on or revisits a lot of stuff from the past of the Discworld. I think, Ben, this is one of the reasons maybe why it feels like a bit of a throwback. There's so much stuff in here we've seen before. But yeah, we get we get the story of when the Eternally Surprised, uh, who learns about time and decides he will build a temple in a perfect day that will exist forever and invents the procrastinator, which is like a prayer wheel, but it um, spools up or unleashes time so you can redirect time to where you need it and also founds like a monastery in an order of monks who become enlightened and learn how to do this so that they can help the world. And uh, they want to a weird number. way to get a girlfriend, but all right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, and that happens before any of the rest of it, you know, like it's, well, or does it? Like, I one thing that wasn't clear. <laughs> Doesn't matter when it happens. It well, yeah. when things happen in history is a different question to when things happen in someone's personal order of experience, right? So mm. for me, when I stopped and thought about it at the end of the book, I was like, when when meets time, and he seemingly goes to live with her forever in the realm of time. Is that before or after he spends a lot of time in the real world with Claude Poole? I love Claude Poole, the <laughs> idiot apprentice. He's great. Yeah, setting up the valley and the monastery of Oidong, a name that, like many of the names in this book, I'm sure we'll have much to say about mm. as we go on. But I think there's a few things where it's not really clear, and I think it doesn't really matter, but it did make me think. I love these asides, and the Claude Poole when dynamic just appeals to the stupidest part of my sense of humour, <laughs> which is just a guy with a really dumb name getting yelled at and told he's stupid. I don't know why it just every one of them just made me laugh out loud. <laughs> it's pretty good. I mean, it's so classic, like white face, red nose, high status, low status stuff. It's just great. <laughs> but when he's testing, like the, my favorite one is when he's he's invented the like procrastinators and there's like oh. just testing it and it's yes. done through the dialogue and it's just so good. It's like he's scratching a record. Oh yeah, yeah so good. That so guy good. down there, that's me. But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's one little thread through the book, which gives us a bit of background. Then there's uh, death's involvement, which begins hilariously with the death of rats creating a device to measure an increase in order in the world by having a device that drops buttered toast on the ground to see which side or it lands on. pieces up. of carpet. Yeah. <laughs> Tiny was so good. I really, I'd love to see a drawing of that device because I, I, I kept trying to imagine it in different ways. And it was kind of like, you know, one of those big wheels that circus performers, they roll around. I kind of imagined it like two or three of those kind of interlocking with all these weird little devices on them and little platforms. It had big walls and grommet energy to me. <laughs> 100%. Yes, I also found it very difficult to picture and I had to reread. This is like a classic Terry Pratchett doing sort of visual storytelling or like almost to a fault where I had to reread this mm. section probably like three times to go, what is actually happening? <laughs> yeah, there's a bit of that in this book, I think, because he is such a show-don't-tell kind of person. And yeah, in this book, maybe there are some points where it's like, oh, I don't quite get this. No, I, I pictured it kind of like a circle, like going like perpendicular to the ground that had the toast on it, and then another circle perpendicular to that running horizontal with the carpet squares. The carpet one goes around the middle. Kind of like a gyroscope. So when it drops, it drops onto a specific carpet as it goes around, if that kind of makes sense. But it doesn't quite follow, like, laws of engineering, which I guess you can break in Death's Realm, perhaps. Mm. I'm feeling a bit codpool right now. <laughs> yeah. Look, I don't think we need to think about it too much. It's, <laughs> it, it's, it's funny. The most important part of the whole plot, no. Yeah. 
Um, we should move on. All right. <laughs> but look, that, that's what that's what causes them to know the auditors are up to something. Death tries to find out what through his mirror and sees a vision of Nanny Og. And I was like, Nanny Og's in this? I did not know this. This was a big surprise for me. And listener, if you've been listening for a while, you know that Nanny Og is my favourite witch. So I was delighted that she gets a cameo all to herself, like the other witches aren't involved. I thought that was great. And you got to see her young too. Like, yeah, we young see her. Nanny Og on the prowl. Yeah, <laughs> quite a lot. Yeah. Yeah, I loved it. Her involvement is that someone visited her, uh, who we later discover is when, although that's, I think that's, it was a reasonable guess at the start, who is looking for the world's best midwife and visits her three times during her life trying to figure out when she becomes that person. And eventually we discover that that happened 10 days before Susan goes to see her in the main plot. So it's it's all very timey-wimey, wibbly-wobbly. Um, Even though the child has grown like 17 years in that time. So. Yeah, I was into that. That all made sense to me. Uh, so that's that's another thread because um, Death's like, okay, well, we need to figure this out. But I can't see what happened apart from this clue that it started with Nanny Og. And she's not going to talk to me about it. So I'm going to have to ask someone else for help. We all know who that someone is, but we'll come back to her. There's also gifted clockmaker Jeremy Clockson. And I, I have to admit, I, it took me a while to realize this was a pun name. Because I do not like the man who this name is, is based on. Yes, I'm not a Top Gear fan. I did not in my head go Jeremy Clarkson, Jeremy Clarkson. He is not a big part of my mental world anymore. And I think, you know, he has faded a bit more into obscurity since he was fired off Top Gear. And now his show that he makes, what's it called? The Grand Tour or something is only on Amazon. So he's not as much in the public consciousness now. So it's not as obvious, sir. I think we've just brought him into the public consciousness more than he has been for a long time through this conversation. <laughs> I feel mm. so bad about that. <laughs> he would love that. But also, he wasn't, like, as visibly terrible, I think, at the time this book no, was written. No, he was just sort of a bit of a stupid... A lad. Lad, was yeah. his persona. And then I think the, the mask dropped. And then, yeah, mm. as so often happens. Yeah, because this was published in 2001, 20 years ago. He's visited by a mysterious lady who commissions <laughs> him to build an accurate clock and suggests that it might be so accurate it can measure the tick of the universe and she leaves him with a book of fairy tales that will hopefully inspire his design room reading yeah (laughs) what do we think about jeremy as a character Mm. he's got that whole my insanity inspires me deal which i'm not a great fan of as a trope I mean, I think it doesn't, it's not as egregiously horrible here as in many places. It's a fairly light touch. But he also has that later in the book that, like, I'm so much better when I'm not taking my medication. And I'm like, this is a 20 years ago attitude to mental illness in fiction. Although it does seem to be made fairly clear that that's, well, no, it's complicated, I guess, because that I was going to say that that's a bad thing. But the, the, the guy from the Clockmakers Guild who's bringing him the medicine is also painted in a, a very negative light. So mm. I suppose that's it's a bit murkier. Mm. I got a kind of Stanley from Going Postal feeling about him. He's just got a singular laser-minded focus on the thing he likes. Mm. And if anyone deviates from that, he'll have a little moment. I neither liked nor disliked him. I found him an interesting character. And I thought that that lined up well with what was revealed about why he's like he's not like a whole person. Yeah, totally. And I feel like what you've just described about them not being whole people as such... 
creates some kind of interesting, um, I don't want to say problems, but for me it made them as characters a little challenging to engage with um, mm. in, in different ways that I think could kind of be justified in plot terms in, in how you've just expressed. But I did come away from engaging with, with both Jeremy and Lobsang being like, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about these characters. Yeah. Mm. You don't get a good handle on them. Mm. Mm. You know, I kind of agree with you that it does feel like they're incomplete, but I feel like it's kind of a bit one-sided. Like, I feel that is true of Jeremy, but Lobsang or Newgate Ludd, who we'll meet in a second, does not really seem like that. Like, there's nothing obviously missing. Like, he felt like a much more complete character, whereas Jeremy felt a bit hollow. Like, he's got his clocks and that's it. And his motivation was not clear. Like, it wasn't... There's a sort of hint that he likes things to be orderly and he's a very organised person. But beyond that, he doesn't really have a lot of a personality. Whereas Lobsang or Newgate feels like he is a full person. So, let's just be blunt about what the twist is at this point. We don't... Yeah. Like, they're the same person born twice. And so, they have been raised separately, but they are the same person. And eventually, they get merged back into the complete person they were always meant to be. I think your point is really valid in that, like, Lobsang does feel more like a real character. But I also think that your point about how Jeremy had laser focus... And that was all he was fits into that because it feels like Lobsang is that student who's like talented but has no real drive, mm. whereas Jeremy has the drive and the talent but nothing else. So it's like his motivation is kept somewhere else. And yeah. so like they're not evenly split, mm. but they fit together. Yes, I was thinking exactly the same thing, actually, because to me, while Lobsang is a perspective character, so we, we get inside his head a bit more, he also feels quite incomplete. To me, and as you've just said, Liz, I think he, he does kind of lack motivation to some degree. Like, for much of the book, he's really just a foil for Lutzi, which is great because I think Lutzi is this amazing character. Mm. But I, I do feel like there, there is perhaps by design this slight kind of hole at the heart of the plot in these two characters. Mm. Yeah. So, it's not an even divide. They're not like half, but they're, yeah, complementary. Yeah, and they, I mean, they don't get half of the screen time, so to speak, either. Mm. Uh, we do rejoin Susan, though, at this point in the book, and I'm still kind of shocked and dismayed with myself that the book that I skipped was, like, the last one with Susan. I love her. Although, maybe I don't love her as much in this, and I, there's some choices that Pratchett has made about her trajectory and her life that I'm like, I don't know about this. She's now gone from being a governess in a private home to being a teacher at a fancy school, a fancy school which is clearly a bit of a piss take of the Montessori uh, Steiner <laughs> kind of free range students kind of schooling. Although also interesting to look at it through a lens of 20 years ago where modern standard schooling is a lot more like what's described in this book and it, those ideas are not nearly seen as so outlandish anymore. And I think Madame Frout would be quite at home in a modern school uh, in Australia, certainly. But yeah, she's teaching her students and laying down the law and being a general awesome person, but also kind of a dick. I'll just come out and say it. Like, she's a little bit of a jerk in this book. I liked it. I don't know. And she had a bit of a Miss Frizzle kind of energy, I thought, like oh, totally. a magic school bus kind of thing. Like, I didn't, I never saw her as really a jerk. I think she's got a bit of walls up because she's had a lot that happened when she was young and if I think if any of them came down she'd probably just dissolve into a puddle because like she lost both her parents she's got this fraught relationship with her grandfather and it's just I think she has to she is her own safety net 
So I never really saw her as someone who's going through the world being cruel or mean or nasty for the sake of it. I think she's just protecting herself, which doesn't mean it's okay to be mean to Mrs. Frout, who's just trying her best. But um, I think it's a bit of suffer no fools, but also like, I have to be grumpy, otherwise I will collapse kind of thing. Like her, mm. her anger is a spine or an exoskeleton of sorts. Yeah, it's been a really long time since I've read, was it Hogfather? Mm-hmm. Is that the last one she last was one? in? Yeah. Um, so I couldn't really remember how she'd been characterized in the past, but I was really into it. I mean, I think largely just because I, I think the way she's mean to people is very funny. <laughs> so that's yeah. kind of... That's, <laughs> That's part of it. That's fair. That's but fair. she also has a kind of, she's almost like a mirror to Lucy in a lot of ways in that they're these two characters that represent a constant pushing to see the world as it is rather than how they want to see it or rather than how people people see it. And that that is, I mean, in very different ways, as you've said, Liz, Susan is kind of uncomfortable in her own skin in, in lots of ways for a range of very understandable reasons. But yeah, I, I kind of, I like that perspective on on the world and that theme running through the book of truth, clarity. I think there's value in that. And it does try to kind of unpack her vulnerability in the later parts of the book as well. I mean, she effectively becomes the the protagonist by the end of it. Although there are a few issues I have with that as well, but we'll we'll get there. Mm. She does disappear for large parts. There's so many characters and so much going on in this book that nobody really takes the, the main driving seat for too long. Mm. Uh, I think the bulk of it is driven by Lutzi and Lobsang. But then, you know, Susan becomes more significant towards the end. And death kind of is there, but kind of disappears for a long part of the book as well. And actually has a very minor role, really. It sets things in motion and provides vital clues, but then kind of goes off to do his own thing. But Susan, I feel like I would have liked to have seen her evolve a bit more. Like, I feel like she's still in the place she was in Hogfather. And it would have made more sense for me for her to have dealt with it a bit more. Like, at the end of Hogfather, it felt to me like she kind of reconciled with death a lot more than is suggested by her attitude in this book, where she's outraged that he's even contacting her. Hmm. And death is kind of hesitant to do so because he's like, oh, she's not going to like this, but I need to because I, I can't do this. And also, you know, it's a bit rough of her to say, how dare you, when it's like, well, if I don't, like, the world will end. <laughs> like... I don't know. Well, it's complicated because she's clearly got contact with him because he came and talked to her class and they all drew pictures of him and made a cardboard binky and all that. So it seems like they have contact. So maybe it's like the way he contacted her, she doesn't want to get drawn into death business. Like she's happy to be his granddaughter, but she doesn't want to engage too hard with the supernatural part of herself. Like that's Mm. just a theory. That's the vibe I got. I think, and particularly because when she first sees the death of rats is kind of how he contacts her. And I almost felt like that was kind of the trigger for her going, oh, this isn't about him wanting to see me. This is something, this is some saving the world nonsense. Mm. Yeah, that that does make sense. I think for me, I felt the tone was so different. Like when I got to that bit where I realized that death had been one of the excursions that she'd taken the kids on, like not she didn't take them to be dead, (laughs) like he visited. (laughs) Uh, But I was like, that doesn't gel with me for the way that she reacts. But what you're saying makes more sense of it. Yeah. I just love the idea of Death receiving all these, like, pictures of him drawn by, like, tiny children. He's like, because he says, like, I I like the pictures the kids drew of me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I can almost imagine, because he's got access to everything, that he's got a fridge in his kitchen Mm. and he's magneted them up on the fridge. (laughs) Like, I could totally see Death doing that. Absolutely. It's very cute. 
but yes, the death of rats turns up in the classroom. She is not pleased to see him, but agrees to meet with death. And a book is also left for her. And it's the same book of fairy tales that has been given to Jeremy. Uh, meanwhile, back up in the mountains, in Oidong, the Ministry of the History Monks, a troublesome apprentice or novice is being shoved in Ludsey's direction because he refuses to learn, even though he's clearly very talented and they're not really happy with him. And he's sent to see Ludsey in his garden. Uh, and this is where we meet both of these characters for the first time properly. We get a lot of information here. Ludsey's kind of a weird figure in the history monks where he's both a legend in his own lifetime of 800 years. Let's not forget, he's had a lot of time to build this legend up. So he's famously done all these amazing things, but also is completely invisible because he holds no official rank amongst the monks. He's a sweeper who are just the, you know, the cleaners at the place who are not even novices. They're not really monks. And he's both. And Lucy is this weird paradox in that way, which, although it's not a paradox at all, because it's clearly a big part of his success is that not everyone underestimates him. I mean, as he continually tells us, that's rule one, don't underestimate small, wrinkly, bald old men. It's an interesting dynamic. I feel like I needed to see a whole lot more martial arts films to understand some of the references. And I could be wrong about that. Like, I feel like maybe, and I'm not ranking it as a martial arts film, but was there a lot of Karate Kid in this? Because that's a film I have not that was, seen. That was my main touchstone, I think. I haven't. I also haven't seen a lot of martial arts films, but I didn't feel like I was missing specific references, but the, mm. you know, very Mr. Miyagi vibes. There is one, um, like the 10th Dojo or something. There's, there's a title of a famous martial arts film that's something around mm. that, um, where there's like an, an amazing moving shot where, and I've, I know about it from seeing a documentary about martial arts films. <laughs> so I haven't <laughs> seen the film itself. So I was like, oh, it's referencing that probably. Don't have time to watch it. Yeah. I'm not a big martial arts film fan, but I do like them and I have seen a few. There's certainly one or two gags in here that I think are drawing more on the Karate Kid. I don't think he gets too specific with the references. I mean, look, it could just be that I've missed some as well. Certainly, he's leaning on the tropes of those things. And the whole kind of apprentice-master relationship, if you've seen Star Wars, you know how it goes, right? This is also the same kind of deal as that. And they're riffing on those martial arts films too. So, it's it's all part of the same, I'm the old wise one, I'm going to teach you, but I'm going to teach you in an unconventional manner. And the young one going, I don't like this, I don't want to rebel and not do what you tell me, but then I'll realise that what you taught me is really important. Like, it's it's all that stuff, which is all in there. I do feel like the element to his character that, in a very Discworld way, pulls him away from being just like a total combination of all of those tropes is the way and the, oh, yeah. <laughs> the quotes peppered throughout the book, which just... Again, made me laugh every time. So stupid. Yeah, and they're all like, the quite pulled are exactly what you would expect from a woman of that nature. I started making a list of them all. There's quite a lot of them. Like, there's at least 20. But I think my favourite thing is when Lucy tells the story of how he adopted the way of Mrs. Cosmopolite, the landlady that he lived with. Uh, he rented a room from when he went to Ankh-Morpork. And the whole story of how he went to Ankh-Morpork because he learned that everyone thinks wisdom is from a very far way away, which is exactly what Pratchett has made a joke about in a previous book. And so for him being up in the mountains, that means going to Ankh-Morpork, whereas the Ankh-Morpork folks write to the monks up in the mountains. And so, yeah, he arrives. And the bits where she says basically the same thing that when the founder of the order said, but, you know, she says it in like plain human language and he says it in this sort of lofty mystic way. It's the same thing. That's great. (laughs) There's no time like the present. Was I not born yesterday? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It was great. With a hyphen. Yes. (laughs) 
yeah, just skewering that sort of made up faux Confucianism kind of stuff that people think is so profound, where it's like, it's not any more profound than the truisms <laughs> that your mum says. It's referenced in another book, isn't it? Like this whole interaction between two of them. I feel like it's in a footnote somewhere. Unless I'm just having deja vu. Yeah, no, The Way of Mrs. Cosmopolite is is definitely mentioned in another book. Um, It's an earlier one. I think you write it to footnote. It's a lot of fun. And it almost immediately also puts Lobsang on the back foot where he's like, you're not what I expected. And I'm a bit annoyed about this. But he's tested. He's tested by Lucy because that's what the abbot has asked him to do. Um, The current abbot of the monastery who is reincarnated as a baby. Um, Bicket. Yeah. Oh, that was so silly. (laughs) Yeah, very silly. kept going with it. (laughs) I know. It's just... It's a bad habit. (laughs) Sorry. But it was good. sorry. It was good, though. He's got so many toys. Like, every time he hits someone with a toy, it seemed like he had a different one. This matches my experience of babies. I've got this bag full of toys that come out of nowhere. But yeah, he's been asked to by the abbot to test him. And so he does a couple of things, talks to him about the surprises in his garden of five surprises, where you can only find four surprises. And so good, the four surprises. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. The fifth surprise. Yes. Uh, Very surprising. Yeah, it was. (laughs) It was very good. Each and every one. Very surprising. I really like the. Is it the singing stick insect? Yodeling stick insect. Yodeling stick insect, yeah. So silly. But yeah, he, he takes him to see the time mandala uh, or mandala. I'm not, I'm not quite sure how you're supposed to pronounce that. There's a Who's few mandala? words. Mandala. Yeah, mandala. So before. the mandala of time, which kind of predicts the, t- the future in some way or shows what's happening with time out in the world. But it's also clearly a fractal <laughs> that's moving around like a nice uh, sort of reference to chaos there. Lobsang sort of sees the mandala and falls into it. And kind of goes back in time and experiences the moment of when he was recruited to the monks. Because he didn't start out there. He was apprenticed to the Thieves' Guild in Ankh-Morpork. And one day while he was on a job, fell off a building and managed to stop himself from hitting the ground and going splat um, in a martial arts move that the monks call the Stance of the Coyote. <laughs> That's a Looney Tunes reference, which was <laughs> very funny. Pratchett does a lot of this in this book where he sort of lays, puts the layers down for a joke and then brings it together later. So, like, he references that Lobsang was known to have done the stance of the coyote. Then we see him freeze time and not fall on the ground. And then later someone says, that's what that thing is. And you go, oh, yeah, like Wiley Coyote before he looks down over the cliff. Um, It was great. I did not pick that up. No, me either. Some of these things I pick up by myself and some of them, you know, I do a lot of looking at notes for the books and stuff when I'm researching and I and I see these connections. I'm like, oh, yeah, I got that one. Oh, I didn't get that one, though. What's that about? And because some of them are references to things that I don't know or you, you just don't pick up. And that was a good one. Um, he, he lives his life slightly out of order, but only in that one moment. Like, I, I thought that was going to become an ongoing thing. But it's not. He just goes back and sort of lives that moment then. And I thought they might come back to and explain that as he's done that sort of unconsciously but deliberately as he doesn't have the knowledge how to slice time and pause time when he's still a thief in Ankh-Morpork. He learns that in the monastery, but his consciousness has sort of gone back in time to that moment so that he can use those skills that he hasn't learned yet. And then he returns. He's doing it on, like, a little scale all the time, isn't he? Usually, like, that's how he steals stuff so well, because, like, even when he's being watched, they can't see him doing it. So he's, like, mm. moving slightly out of time is how I read it. 
all the time, but maybe this is like a bigger version of it, concentrated by like the fact that he saw the mandala and it was just big. Mm. The book goes out of its way at a whole number of points. Like, for example, in the description of his birth, it has a very specific perspective on how kind of time is relived, that it's not kind of different possibilities as such. It's not going back and changing the past or anything like that. It's sort of multiple things happening at once, almost, Mm. or the same thing happening again, for example. And so, I I did find it a little hard to get my head around what was actually happening in this moment when he's thrown back to the the Thieves' Guild, because we don't really see anything else particularly like that throughout Mm. the rest of the book that I can think of. Why? I mean, yeah, for me, it was very, it was kind of a Slaughterhouse-Five kind of deal where his consciousness lives a little bit of his life in a different order to his body. <laughs> I think that's what Pratchett's intending there. I, you know, I don't think he's just reliving that memory. I think he's literally having that experience. But I think also, you know, one of the things about any book that involves, and there's not really time travel in this book. It's not, that's not really an accurate way to describe it, but it is very timey-wimey and that time is out of joint. But I think it does try to have its cake and eat it too in the sense of how things work. Most of it, I think, is internally consistent. There's a couple of things where you're like, well, that's not quite what you said was going on. But some of them are explained very clearly. Like, I think the footnote that explains how Yeti's power to save their life and go back mm. to it if something happens. <laughs> like which a is computer game. <laughs> so good. Um but that explains that very clearly as to why that's not a paradox. Because it's like, well, that never happened. It's just that now they have a memory of what could have happened that's like a very accurate premonition and they can avoid it happening now by doing mm. something different. And you're like, yeah, that's cool. While Lobsang is being tested in the monastery, Jeremy is getting on with trying to build the clock. First of all, he reads the book. Then he has a, a dream showing him the building of the clock. And as we learn from several different sources, the clock has been built before, this glass clock. It trapped time within it, time stopped, and then time in the story escapes and ages the builder of the clock 10,000 years. But Jeremy has this very vivid dream about this in which he sees the mechanism of the clock and how to build it. He wakes up and he's written all these copious notes and he's trying to figure out how he's going to build it when an Igor is delivered on his doorstep. (laughs) And this is a bit, this is one I didn't catch myself, but I saw in notes is that when Igor arrives... Uh, Igor, first of all, his his crate is dumped upside down. Um, and, it's just hilarious with the note, yeah. And he gets himself out of the crate using a crowbar. And then there's several references uh. later in the book to the fact that building the glass clock would be like trying to open a crate with the crowbar that's inside the crate. Hmm. And you're like, well, you can do it if you have an Igor to help you. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was very clever. Um, and yeah, that was one I, I don't know if I would have picked up if I hadn't seen that in an annotation. I certainly breezed right past that. I was like, well, he's out of the crate. I'm not going to think about how. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and I like Igor in this. Igor's a very standard Igor. Um, there's the fun thing about- Igor the- to please. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> it's true. Um, yeah. The fun thing about having an Igor as a sort of a major supporting character is it feels like an old friend, even though this is a different Igor. This is not the same Igor that Parts we've met of in any of them. the new Igor. Well, that's true. <laughs> but this specific Igor has been picked for a very specific purpose. He's been sent by Lady Lejeune, the mysterious woman who's commissioned the clock, because his grandfather built the original one in Überwald. And so he's going to have some insight in how to make this one. He's going to have the requisite skills. Having him around can be quite handy. <laughs> Indeed. Um, I mean, I think that having 
ego, like to, which goes to what we were talking about earlier around the slight strangeness of Jeremy's character. It's it's weird that as his story gets further along, the perspective characters on that story become Igor and, as I would pronounce it, Lady Lejeune, given the what we learn about her pun name, oh, yes. um, rather than Jeremy, which is weird, given that they kind of start out as these very other perspectives. But then we mm. kind of, as as Jeremy starts to go further and further down the rabbit hole of building the clock, we leave his perspective and see him from the outside through Igor. Mm. Yeah, and I had this fear that Jeremy was going to turn out to be evil and, like, he was going to be a villain. I didn't want that for him because I kind of liked him. But then as he became less and less transparent to us and we saw him more and more from an outside perspective, I worried that's where it was going. And then he disappears entirely once the clock is made and we basically don't see him again except being unconscious. And then once they join together, like, he's just gone. It just feels like... He is such a small part of the personality split between the two that the 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 post joining of the two and this is you know this is where it eventually ends up is that they they combine and become one person, but it just felt like that was Lobsang and he even says that's the name I'd prefer because that life has more happy memories. Lobsang's more like the personality, whereas as I was saying before, I think that Jeremy's more of the drive. He's the bit that lies underneath a person usually, like he's the one that actually understands how time works like he that's why he understands the mechanics of it all like he understands what materials are best for that and i would argue that lobsang does not know any of that stuff he just sort of intuits it all so it's like jeremy is the core understanding and the like the bit that doesn't normally have a personality the bit that you don't normally see and that's why he functions so badly mm. in the world so i would argue that he hasn't disappeared it's that his he was never supposed to have a surface because the surface is lobsang I would have liked it better if they got a new name, but because I like the character Lobsang more because he had a personality more than Jeremy, I wasn't sad to see him sort of still exist as well. If I had to choose one of them to disappear, it would be Jeremy because it felt like Jeremy was never really there. Mm. Like the only bits of, like, it's not like he was entirely under layer. He had um, moments and things that, like, came through his clear, like, drive to do things, but... Yeah, I think it's not that he's erased. I think it was that he was always a deeper level. Hmm, okay. Yeah, which is how I'd like to see it, because there were things about him I did like. Well, because so. I feel like the, the alternative being that he just is basically erased from the book after being treated really very badly mm. by a lot of other people is is kind of upsetting. Yeah. Hmm. And I didn't enjoy that, that sort I, of I, journey. I like that optimistic reading, Liz. I think that's, I think that's nice. Hmm. Because he's he's the bit that gets it, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I can see that. I feel like he's undervalued even more so, though, in a way, because Lobsang doesn't need to get it to do it. Mm. Like in the bit we're about to get up to with the monks, he averts a disaster, and he couldn't tell you how he did it, but he just does it, and it's like, well, clearly it doesn't matter. Then he doesn't need to know. Whereas Jeremy's got no special powers beyond knowing exactly what time it is, and being able to build really accurate clocks. But do you think that Lobsang could have taken over as the heir to time if he didn't have the Jeremy bit? Well, I think the narrative tells us that he couldn't, but I don't see what he was missing, really, that means he couldn't. Yeah, again, I feel like it's very uneven. It wasn't like they were two Mm. halves of a whole. It was like Lobsang was like 90% and Jeremy's like this little missing 10%. And I felt sad for him because I liked him. (laughs) I was thinking thinking kind of mythically about the outlines of their lives, while, I mean, we, we ultimately don't find out exactly how, when, 
placed the foundlings. You know, presumably he could have put Jeremy with the Clockmakers Guild, but Lobsang doesn't end up with the History Monks until he's a teenager. And so I, I kind of wondered about what was the role of sort of destiny in, in dictating their relationship? Like, would Lobsang have even known anything about his relationship to time and his intuitions about time had he not ended up there, which again was like, what, what when he was like 16? Mm. Nature mm. and nurture, that kind of thing. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Uh, look, let's keep going because we'll, we'll get more into this as we go. But yeah, and we've got to hurry up because we're like right at the beginning and there's so much book. <laughs> I know, there's so much book. Well, look, let's, let's get through the plot in broad strokes. We'll, we'll try and stop slice for through things it. that we like. Yeah, we'll slice. It's time for us to get into Zimmerman's Valley so we can get through the whole thing. <laughs> oh, that was so good. I liked that. Anyway, so Susan goes off to meet with Death after having an interview with Madame Frout, the chief of her school, where she just yeah. casually goes through all her stuff while freezing time. Like, this is what I mean. Like, that's not... And there's that line where she's like, she didn't see anything wrong with this. I'm like, you're checking not only in her bottom drawer and reading all the papers on her desk, but you actually go into her safe. And it's never said why she needs to do that. Like, there's no reason for it. And I was like, this is gross. I don't like this, Susan. Uh, Anyway, she does that and she goes off to a gentleman's club called Fidgets in Ankh-Morpork, the fanciest (laughs) one. Yeah, she love the idea of death at the gentleman's club. Cause, yeah. Sorry, can I? I know we said we'd tear through this, but I just like no, have no. a massive note on the page introducing the the um, gentleman's club, which just says in all capital letters "gay." Because whenever I see any yes. like gay content in any of the Discworld books, I'm just like, oh, what? Wait, there's gay stuff here. And as a professional homosexual, basically, I'm always on the lookout for it, and particularly yes. because there's not. I mean, there is some queer stuff in Discworld. I think, you know, one of my favourite Discworld novels is Monstrous Regiment, and the whole thing is is a very queer story. But there's not a whole heap of, like, gay male stuff. I think one of the main characters in a very sort of nudge-nudge-wink-wink way in Unseen Academicals is gay, but I, it's been a long time mm. since I've read mm. it. Um, Same. So just whenever I see this stuff, I get very excited because it's very silly. He's talking about they didn't much like the company of ladies. That was not to say that they were that kind of gentlemen who had their own rather better decorated clubs in another part of town where there was generally a lot more going on. Um, and I think like to the kind of, despite having read these books for a long time, I don't actually know a lot about Terry Pratchett as a as a person, but I sort of have this deeply held trust that if he were to kind of have written a bunch about gay stuff for him to not have had that be really kind of wonderful and celebratory and interesting would just be so out of step with everything that I know about his values Mm. through his writing and so Mm. whenever I see something like this I don't know if that makes sense it's whenever I see something like this pop up and in a very sort of you know I think queer people are very used to just finding whatever little kind of nuggets of any queer stuff in a text that they can and extrapolating from it but I do kind of hold that in in my heart when I when I read Discworld and and imagine that um, that that's how he would write about these things. Yeah, and I certainly got that impression from even just that short section. Yeah, like it's a joke at the expense of the stodgy gentleman's club. It's not at the yes. expense of the much more interesting other gentleman's club down the street. I always get the impression that there are some areas where he felt uncomfortable writing about stuff that he didn't really know. And you get the impression that he may not have known or not had many close friends, at least, who were out queer folks. So he didn't write about that. And I think that's kind of a function of his age and when he grew up and where he grew up. We can look at the dwarf allegory. Yeah, yeah. 
working so well for a lot of trans folks' experience, as they have recently, unfortunately, had cause to talk about, because um, we won't talk about this too much because why give them oxygen, but as a, a bunch of people trying to suggest that Terry Pratchett would mm. be, quote-unquote, gender critical, and mm. a bunch of people were like, have you read his actual books, including Rihanna Pratchett? Yeah, it seems inconceivable that he would have anything but respect and a lovely way of writing about it. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's what makes Monstrous Regiment particularly interesting in that he, he kind of accidentally wrote a, wrote a queer novel. <laughs> it feels that way, the, doesn't it? Totally, that, like drawing on the tropes of um, of uh, women dressing up as men to go to war. But but it, it actually ends up being a, a very complex and interesting exploration of, of, uh, of gender. Um, yeah, anyway. I need to reread that. Yeah, I'm I'm really looking forward to when we get to that one. But look, uh, yes, this is where the meeting, not in the more interesting club, but in the stodgy old club uh, fidgets where only men are allowed for stupid reasons, not cool and fun ones. The meeting takes place where Death basically explains to Susan that the world is going to end and he s- switches from that small talk, which he craves because he wants that connection with her to the big talk, as Susan describes it, on a dime. Feels very Death-like to do that. And explains that, yes, look, someone's going to build this clock. It's going to stop all time. The world will end at one o'clock on Wednesday. And then it's just one o'clock Wednesday forever. A staple of timey-wimey plots. And he needs her help to find this guy. And then he drops the morsel of information, which is like, time had a son. And he's someone who's kind of like you. And that's what really sort of gets her involved. Although she's not happy about this. Can I just quickly say something like, time could have been stopped multiple times in our lives and we wouldn't know well yeah i mean it could be happening right now the premise of the of time in this book is that it happens every tick of the universe uh the universe is destroyed and then created anew in a slightly different state i mean that's philosophically it's pretty full-on <laughs> um, well, that's the whole thing about like travel like teleportation as well isn't it like it is it you that's teleporting or are you just making a new you having destroyed the previous you? Well, yes. And that is how practical teleportation would work. It is definitely you destroy the original you and make a copy somewhere else. To the point about the kind of universe being created and destroyed every second, I think it also speaks to an interesting thread throughout the book of the relationship between memory and the actual nature of reality. Like mm. if people, if everyone kind of remembers things a certain way, even if that doesn't really make sense, I mean, what's the difference between that and... Changing history. Yeah, I guess it's kind of a, like, if a tree falls in the forest kind of thing, except for history. Mm. Yeah. It's like a consensus belief makes something true. Like, there was, like, a concept called, like, wikiality, like, ages ago, like, if enough people believe it. But then it's, like, real problematic if you go into, if you push that in different directions. Yeah. Yeah. Because we were getting to it, like, the Yeti scene, where they, like, learn about how Yetis can, like, reset... And the Yeti will automatically remember because they've been trained to, but um, Lucy is like, make sure to try and remember this to Lob Sang because your brain's going to try and not do it. That's like a question of did it actually happen or are they all just sharing in this premonition now? Because like it happened, but then it, it depends on whether it happened in your chronological life or in the chronology of the world, like which one is true. Mm. Mm. And they can both be true, but different is one of the things that time travel creates the opportunity for. I feel like the idea that both can be true is an order to trap. Yeah. 
Yes. yes. <laughs> totally. Uh, they would not like reading most time travel fiction, I suspect. <laughs> no, they'd just, they'd all just blow up at different intervals. Like, but it's a paradox. Yeah, no, they wouldn't but enjoy it. We got to blitz through because I want to spend some time on the auditor traps when we get to that oh, yeah, section yeah. because it was an absolute joy. All right. Now, listen, we, we are going to have to time slice our way through this. So we apologize if we miss any of your favorite bits, but we'll try and we're stop off. Definitely going to miss house. some of ours. Yeah, we're going to have to miss some of ours because there's so many good things. Anyway, so Susan gets the story. She also finds out that the previous time the glass clock was built, it blew up. When it shattered, it broke history. History was all mashed up and thrown into disarray and the monks had to go around and fix everything, which is why there are so many continuity errors in the history of the Discworld because they had to sort of patch it together as best they could and they couldn't do a perfect job. Uh, and there are lots of fun examples of that throughout the books. And you get the impression that these are things that probably people complained about on alt fan Pratchett back on the news <laughs> groups in the day. Like, why is there the disc, which is like an Elizabethan era theater across the road from a Victorian era opera house? Like, uh, <laughs> stuff like that. And like I said before, there's a lot of anachronisms in this book that are probably explainable away in the, in the same way. The biggest one that I remember off the top of my head being that at one point, Ronnie Soak says that he prefers the term avatar to the term anthropomorphic personification. And Lucy pretends to mishear it as aviator. And I'm like, there's no way the word aviator exists on the disc. Like the only people flying through the air are riding on dragons and they do not call themselves aviators, I'm sure. Uh, or witches, I suppose, but they don't call themselves aviators either. So I'm like, like that doesn't Lucy make sense. lived like a non-linear life. So it's possible he's seen it and he's gone background i don't know mm, he doesn't seem to live a particularly long non-linear life again there's not a lot of actual time travel where people mm. go into the past or into the future it's more that they speed up or slow down their own passage of time and do that on a sort of a worldwide level where they go well we need more time over there so we'll speed up time here and we'll take the extra time that now no longer need there and stick it over here, which works from a metaphorical sense. Like you can construct a sentence that says that. I don't know that you can really make sense physically of how that would work. And the way that it's explained away of people not noticing it is that they do notice it when they say things like, well, is it Thursday already? Or oh, this week has lasted forever, which we're all very familiar with in our current time in the world. But I don't know that it can really make a lot of metaphysical sense, but that's okay. No, you just, you know, grab some sea time and put it into, you know, now. Yeah. Makes um, sense. Basically, the, we've got the thread of Lob saying, learning as apprentice to Lucy, he gets fed up and challenges Lucy to fight him to show him some actual useful skills. And as Lucy sort of makes him feel like this is a worse and worse idea, they're saved by the bell. The monks have detected the building of the clock and they want to have a meeting about it. And on their way to it, there's a cascade overflow. The procrastinators, the big prayer wheels that gather up and spool out time, have gone haywire. They're spewing out time randomly everywhere. It's written like it's a nuclear reactor meltdown, which makes sense because, as we know, Terry Pratchett started out his writing life as a journalist and he wrote a lot about nuclear reactors when he was young. So he knows that kind of feel. And this is, I think, out of all of the books, possibly the exception of the first Science of Discworld book, it feels most like that. It's like a Chernobyl-level disaster. That's like all journalists, right? You you've written a lot about nuclear reactors. It's just like a classic journalism thing. Yeah, that it? was my main beat. And yeah. <laughs> uh, see, this is what I've missed out by not being a journalist. Uh, that disaster goes potentially horribly wrong, but Lobsang is able to save the day by intuitively balancing all the time. Down to the second. Yeah. And doing it without really understanding how, but just sort of seeing it and being able to do it. 
after that, when they go to the meeting about the fact that the clock is being rebuilt, Lutzi already knows that that's what's going on. He misdirects all of them, telling them that it's probably an Uberwald like the last one, but he knows it's got to be an Ankh-Morpork, and so he gets permission for him and Lobsang to go there alone to try and sort it out. Meanwhile, Jeremy is getting closer and closer to finishing the clock, but Igor has got very suspicious of Lady Lejeune, who doesn't quite walk on the ground, doesn't ever eat anything, and when Igor follows her, he discovers that she's rented a big house and goes to lots of art galleries and things, but doesn't ever seem to do other normal human stuff. And this is because, as we discover, she is not a human being in the normal sense. She is one of the auditors who is inhabiting a human body they have constructed incredibly accurately. But she's being affected by the human body. The nature of being in a human body is making her think and behave in more human ways. And she's realized she doesn't really want the world to end. And she's been sabotaging the clock project to slow it down so she can maybe try and stop it. Susan's, meanwhile, sort of investigating all of this. She doesn't really get very far. In fact, she only really gets one scene of research when Death shows up or rather sends Binky to her, which is... One of my favourite little moments in the book is when Binky arrives in the library where she's reading about history and she says, like, she'd give all of this stuff up forever except for Binky. And I was just Mm. like, oh, (laughs) that's so lovely. But anyway, she goes to meet with Death, who reveals that I know who this guy is. I can't see him. He's the apprentice of this monk, Lutzi. You've got to find him. Here's Lutzi's lifetimer. Also, you should go and talk to the midwife who delivered them. That's Nanny Og. Here's her lifetimer. And it's never really explained why she needs their lifetimers. I kind of took it as an implication that death can't go and visit someone unless he's got their lifetimer. So I wasn't really sure about that because she doesn't use them for anything. No, I almost felt like that was kind of the only way he knew how to interpret their existence at all. So it's like, go and talk to this person. Here's the person. Yeah, like he doesn't have like a computer that he can print out a picture of them, but he can Mm. go, here's their life in a jar. (laughs) Go and check it out. Yeah, all right. That was fun. But it also, like, I I felt like it was a missed opportunity as well. Like, Susan didn't get to do really real detecting. Like, the only thing she works out is that history is, as Death has told her, messed up. And then he just says, yep, this is where you're going to find the guy. Go get him. And then she sort of vanishes until she finds him. Maybe he wrote... A bunch more of that, but it had to get cut because it was already quite a long book and that's just a way to slice through. That's very possible. It is a very long book. Some things probably had to go because there's a lot happening. Lucy and Lobsang leave the valley, but only after they visit the workshop of Q, um, spelled Q-U. <laughs> I've forgotten that, yeah. Uh, who's clearly <laughs> James Bond Q. Um, and this, this book came out, I think, not long after Desmond Llewellyn, who played the original Q in the movies, had died. And mm. so um, it was a bit bittersweet. But Pratchett said, yes, it's very much him. And in fact, when he was writing it, he uh, heard Desmond Llewellyn's voice in his head for all of the dialogue. Um, but anyway, they, they don't grab any of the exploding things. And I, I love that they have that joke. We did a similar joke in Night Terrace where, you know, the boffin of the secret organization just makes normal things, but then they explode. Um, <laughs> sometimes not on purpose. They take a couple of portable procrastinators, which I imagine made them look a bit like Ghostbusters because they're wearing these big, heavy packs on their back with a big cylinder that's rotating, which Lucy later reveals is because if the clock is finished and time stops, the fact that they've got these portable things that have stored up time will give them their own personal time field and allow them to keep acting to try and fix things. 
So I think given what we learn later about how they need to be kept running, I do just also picture them as these kind of clockwork men running around with these giant yeah. like <laughs> big um, handle on the back things to turn. Like I don't yeah. know I don't know if they <laughs> I can't, don't know if they ever described it as like a crank or something instead, but I imagine them as like a kind of key thing. Like a steampunk Ghostbusters. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a couple of fun TikTok references, like Igor starts to think of Jeremy as the TikTok man, and then he sort of compares him to an actual clockwork man built by one of his previous masters. And you're like, that's a bit mean, but also fun. So they take those. And along the way, Lucy explains what happened with the glass clock in Ubervolt and the whole shattering of time thing. They have to put it back together again. He also tries to explain a bit more why it had that effect which is the whole opening a crate with the crowbar inside it kind of thing, because particularly universe, the shortest possible span of time between things happening, every time there's one of those, the entire universe is destroyed and remade in its slightly different form by time. And that's how time progresses. But the clock that measures the tick of the universe is trying to measure the thing it shouldn't be able to measure because there's no discernible moment between them. And that causes a paradox. I think that's a kind of a complicated idea that maybe didn't need explaining. Like, I think the idea that you build this clock and time stops was kind of enough, but perhaps it's kind of tried to explain why that happens in a way that, you know, it feels narratively satisfying, but maybe doesn't stand up to logical dissection. I mean, I did kind of like the idea that when something like that happens, history shatters because it's the only thing that can give. Because the, mm-hmm. which is a, right. like, and look, this is me kind of reaching back really into Time Travel Wednesdays now, but my, my understanding, <laughs> oh my God, I'm going to regret saying all of this. Like, the <laughs> relativity, like, functions in that way to some degree because the speed of light is a constant that can't change. And so other things have to kind of um, move around it. I'm sure I'm like totally butchering that, but I sort of imagine it in a similar way that, you know, history shattering is the equivalent of kind of time bending around a massive source of mass, for example. Yeah, or mass increasing or decreasing as you mm. approach the speed of light or, or decelerate away from it. Yes. Well, it's like if you shoved a fork into a large clock, the thing that would come off would be the cogs and the clock would break rather than the fork. Yes. Like it's kind of, yeah. Yeah, I like this. Look, again, I think some of the stuff in this book is narratively and emotionally very satisfying, even if you really dig into it and it doesn't necessarily make totally logical sense. It really doesn't matter. You can spend a Wednesday digging into it. Though, <laughs> oh, you yeah, totally, totally could. Totally could. <laughs> and if we had like a five-hour podcast, we could get into it as well. It's five hours, but it's also two hours all at the same time. <laughs> it's released two streams that you listen to at the same time. <laughs> uh, I'll go back in time and do a different edit. Oh. Look, but, yeah, we've got to keep slicing. We do have all to right. keep slicing. Lucy and Lobsang continue on towards Ankh-Morpork. They have this great series of adventures where they find a bunch of hunters who've trapped a yeti, and they free the yeti, and it turns out yetis are these sort of mountain trolls who have a natural ability to slice time. Because it hasn't happened yeti. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if that's where we got the idea to make the yetis the time-travelling monsters from. I don't know. I feel like he's playing a computer game. He's like, this... This is what something is going to be doing in the books. Oh, yeah. Well, he totally, like, famously a big fan of uh, video games, Pratchett. So, yeah, definitely that's where this has come from. They get as far as they can with the Yeti, and then Lucy cuts his head off as a demonstration of their ability to save their lives and go back to their save point. And foreshadow a thing for later. Yeah. And I, when when that happened, I was like, why are you doing this? And because he, he gets Lobsang to try and remember it. He's like, you try and remember it. Don't forget it. 
And I think I wrote a note going, why is he doing this? Clearly, is it, clearly he's going to try and get Lobsang to use this later. And so I was a bit surprised when he uses it for himself. Like, it made sense, but I was also like, why are you so insistent that Lobsang remembers this? So it's like a teaching moment. I just read it as like a teaching moment, but... It could know. be. Along this journey, they also have those moments of teaching where Lobsang basically becomes convinced that Lucy can't fight at all. His whole thing is using rule one, like don't underestimate a small, bald, wrinkly man to intimidate opponents into backing down because he's so confident. And, you know, when they actually have to fight because these hunters don't know about rule one, Lobsang has to do all the work. So he's, he starts to get grumpy about this and start to suspect at several points that really all of Lucy's stuff is a trick. But he does sort of also learn that, well, he might not be able to fight, but he can keep his own feet warm using his mystical monk powers and a pair of woolly leggings from Mrs. Cosmopolite. And also, he's definitely good at slicing time. Like, he does it like nobody else, apart from Lobsang, who, of course, has a bit of an inbuilt advantage. So there's that nice kind of apprentice-master relationship going on there. But in order to get all the way to Ankh-Morpork, they also have to steal a broomstick from a witch's cottage. Well, they don't have to, but they choose that that's how they're going to do it, because that's the fastest way to get there. Doesn't seem rational to me that a broomstick would be faster than literally slicing through time and moving faster than... But anyway, sure. Well, I think they kind of do talk about the fact that it's more difficult to do around people because you can't touch any moving objects. So I think once they get into the Stowe Plains, which are much more heavily populated than the mountains, and certainly once they get in the city, it's quite difficult. Although they do it a lot in the city, so it's like, okay, well, maybe that's not the explanation, but... Yeah, it's a fun thing, but it also means that without Susan realising it at the time, or maybe she does, it's not explicit in the book, but it seems pretty likely that it's Nanny Og's broom that they steal because of where it's hidden uh, in the eaves of her house, which is where Nanny keeps hers in previous books. And also because Quoth the Raven is there trying to spy on them <laughs> once he sees them. Croak. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But I think they've been sent. There's a few bits there that are not explicit, and I don't think they really need to be, but that's happening whilst Susan is talking to Nanny and getting the story of what happened with the birth, and she sort of reveals that, yeah, it was it was a woman who wasn't really there, wasn't really a, a woman who'd never given birth before because she's not natural, she's or at least not a natural human, and then drops the big clangor, which is like, why do you keep talking about he- which, as one of our listeners pointed out on Twitter, immediately made probably a bunch of people reading the book start going, oh, who's the woman? This is a, like a man not of woman born or etc." It was great. <laughs> it was well written, that bit. I couldn't remember if it was actually that it was the two timey boys who seemed like the obvious choice somehow. I was like, or is there like a twist on it and it's going to be actually like the auditor lady who is not actually an auditor? Because I couldn't remember because I was like, which of my theories was the one that was true? But yeah. Mm. I also love Susan and Nanny facing off that had made mm. some, for some very good moments. And it made me want a Susan granny interaction, just full like unstoppable force meets immovable object. Yeah. 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 I don't think that does ever happen, but that would be... It couldn't happen. It would just break the book. Oh, yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll come back to that because I, I think we do have a question about that. I, I'm going to push us towards the end of the plot and we'll pick, come back and pick up anything that we've missed. Yeah, but the clock happens. Yeah, a lot happens. Basically, they all end up in Ankh-Morpork just as the clock is being built. Um, the other auditors have decided that Lady Jean is maybe not entirely trustworthy, so they 
incarnate is their word, six more auditors who will go with her to make sure the clock is finished. They end up being given the names uh, Mr. Pink, Mr. Blue. Um, and it Mrs. does end up really Yellow. Reservoir Dogs. So. Yeah, it's very yeah. Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. And despite her last-minute attempt to shatter the clock very good. before it's activated with a hammer, the other auditors stop her, although they're very forgiving. They're like, it's okay, we understand Like the body is messing with you, but this still has to happen. This is our plan so that we've got enough time, as one of them says at one point in the book, to get all the filing done, <laughs> which I thought was so great. And the clock is activated. It strikes one and time stops. Just as Lucy and Lobsang, who've got into the city and are trying to figure out exactly where it is, they realize that it needs a lightning strike to power it up like the original one. And so they're running into the middle of the city, slicing time so much that everyone else seems to be frozen. And they're waiting for the lightning strike so that they can try and race the lightning to get to the workshop before it hits the clock and activates it. And Lobsang goes for it. I mentioned earlier Zimmerman's Valley. That's this idea that if you slice time, it's really hard. The faster and faster you do it, the harder it becomes. But then there's this point where suddenly it becomes easier because of quantum reasons. There's this sort of resonant frequency at which you slice time where it becomes easier. And there's supposed to be another one closer to the point where you can't do it anymore. And no one's ever reached it except by, you know, exploding. And Lobsang manages to reach that, goes super fast and dies through the window of the shop, and he's trying to open the door into the inner workshop where the clock is, and that's when it gets activated. And everything stops. This whole sequence is so phenomenal. It's why I really love the structure of the book. It feels like these three sort of threads circling each other that all converge on this single point, then everything kind of breaks. Mm. Like, when I think about what I love about this book and, and why I kind of remember it so vividly, it was one of the first Eastworld books I ever read, the imagery is so stunning and just the whole idea of the kind of red shift, blue shift stuff while this lasting time is really amazing and has always just stuck with me as this really, really powerful image and them kind of pushing that as hard as they can as they're getting to this like slowly snaking uh, bolt of lightning coming down through the sky. I just think this is one of the most amazing sequences in any Discworld novel and it is just such a fantastic point for all of the story to come together. Really just wanted to gush about that. Yeah. yeah, and it's dramatic without being like over the top. It's just beautiful. Mm. I also like the way that he introduces this idea of in between the scenes. Like he's always had this thing where he just has a, a section break, and that's where you know you're skipping from one scene to another. And in this book, all of those section breaks up till this point have had the word tick in italics in between them. But then when the clock strikes one, we get tick, and we don't get the k- until much later. In fact, I think... Um, Depending on the edition of the book that you read, it's at least like 120 to 140 pages in between those moments. And that's a lot that happens while time is frozen. But it's just a nice reminder when it finishes, here's a cue for what's going on. And it creates this kind of eeriness for this whole section as well that's so pervasive. I kept thinking about, and for a range of reasons, I think this is the point at which the auditors really start to feel like a Doctor Who villain in the sort of rules that they have and how they look and like the moment when it's like two of them see them and they have to run off to get a third i'm like that's extremely stephen moffat doctor who (laughs) monster even that kind of i don't know how deep into doctor who references i can go i only know some things but the the kind of end of the first matt smith season there are all Mm -hmm. those sequences that take place in the museum and it just really i found that very reminiscent of that all of them just moving around in this empty silent space evading the only other kind of, you know, quote-unquote living things there. I I love the whole atmosphere of this section of the book. 
listeners, um, Ben mentioned Doctor Who rules still apply. So if you are drinking a drink, um, <laughs> when there's a reference. Yeah. And I'm going to do it again. Because I actually, yeah, reading this, clearly Pratchett is a fan. I mean, there's also references in this book to things that are bigger on the inside and to weird time stuff. I mean, the whole thing about death has a granddaughter named Susan, like that's a Doctor Who reference in itself, right? But Jeremy and Lob saying Lucy as well, and, and then the Abbott, and like a lot of the characters, Susan, they feel very much like they could be versions of the Doctor in some way or another. Like it's just, they're all very Time Lordy and they step outside of time and to differing degrees. Like Jeremy has like basically just that perfect time sense and a sense when time is not quite right. That's it. That's what some versions of the Doctor are like. Lob saying has got this ability to do all this weird supernatural time-related stuff. And you're like, well, that's what other versions of the Doctor have been like. And then Lutzi's like, don't believe all the rules that they tell you. And he's got all these personal rules, which is a whole thing that happens during the Moffat era of Doctor Who. Man, I wish Pratchett had written a Doctor Who story. <laughs> like, just one. Just, you know, maybe just a short story special. or something. Would have been cool. I think you meant like an actual episode of Doctor Who. Like if he'd written oh, like a Christmas special. That would have been cool that. too. But I, by his own admission, he's not a TV writer. So I think him writing prose probably would have been better. But I, yeah, I would love to have known what he would have done with it. So with Time Frozen, only some characters can still move around. And of course, there's always that question of like, well, how do you move? If there's no time, what are you actually moving around in? The book does kind of address this in that the characters who can move around are either outside of time or have their own time in one way or another. Which is also, like, almost all of the characters. Like, they're really... <laughs> the key ones. It's true, yeah. And almost none of the main characters are left out here. Because Death's off doing his thing. He's trying to recruit the other three horsemen of the apocalypse. Because he's told Susan that he can't get involved because he's got to ride out. It's the end of the world. That's what traditionally the four horsemen do. And she's kind of appalled. It's like, why? Like, what's the point of that? Like, the, you're going to celebrate the end of the world? And she's a bit annoyed about it. And in typical Death fashion, he doesn't really explain what he's doing. But the other horsemen don't want to come for various reasons. War. I'm sorry. I found that so funny. Like, I know that like, the nagging wife trope so is, good. like, a real thing. But I really enjoyed War being married to a former Valkyrie. And she's like, no, no, you don't like beer. Remember, you like your oat milk. And he's like, oh, yeah, that's right. I, I do like it's, it's quite good. All right. <laughs> no, it's amazing. I also don't love the nagging wife trope. But the um, mm-hmm. I have it marked as one of my favorite quotes. Um, dear, do I ride out for apocalypses? Mrs. War took the lid off a saucepan and prodded viciously at something inside. No, dear, she said firmly. You always come down with a cold. (laughs) (laughs) It seems very out of character for a Valkyrie, to be honest. Out of character for War, though. Well, she gets into it later when War gets his war on. When he gets his war voice on and she gets all flustered. It's like, oh, that's how you used to talk. And you're like, okay, this has kind of redeemed this relationship in my eyes to a large extent. very cute. But yeah, he's not having much luck recruiting them. And they're quite short scenes where he goes to see them. It made me think of the similar scenes in Good Omens. Good Omens is different because the horsemen have been out doing their thing and sowing that stuff in the world. Whereas here, it's kind of intimated that all of them have become a bit redundant and they're not really needed because the world has become more peaceful and they've learned how to deal with diseases and nobody really starves anymore. (laughs) Well, this is the theory of, of the disc world, right? And so they're all kind of a bit sad and not quite the same as they used to be. And death is quite disappointed. So it's a real counterpoint to the come and see sequences in Good Omens, I thought. I enjoyed all of it. But like Pestilence just sort of sadly in the hospital trying to peel a wash your hands <laughs> yep. label off the wall. So, so <laughs> pathetic. Also so a great. significant number of deaths in hospitals caused by lack of hand washing. So. Yeah, it's true. It's getting a lot of, um, I mean, it's effective. 
mm, what he's mm. doing. But yeah. Yeah. Wash your hands, people. Mm. But the other people who can move around include, surprisingly, Mr. Ronnie Soak, the dairyman who's been very punctual. Jeremy likes him because he's always there at seven o'clock on the dot. And this was a bit of a red herring to me because I was like, oh, he always delivers to Jeremy bang on mm. the right time. Mate, what's his special relationship to Jeremy? And it sort of misdirected me not having read the book before to go, is he, is he Jeremy's dad secretly? Cause I kind of, I knew that I knew what his deal was in a way, but I didn't know wholly how he related to the plot. Milkman trope. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah. The milkman <laughs> trope. Exactly. And I think that's probably an intended red herring, right? That you meant to think that it's not the case at all though. He's delivering to everyone at 7 a.m. every morning. Yeah. And I love that. Just the idea of it. And then no one's cottoned on. They're like, no, it's just, you know, the milkman. He delivers at 7 o'clock, even up to the, the valley, like where the history monks are. Oh, yeah. That's right. I forgot that. Uh, he's, that's why he's got the yak butter that they like. He's got he's everything. Got alligator milk. Oh, yeah. So weird. I loved it. <laughs> He can move around and Lobsang wakes up and his procrastinator is running on his back, the clockwork powered one, um, which, as we mentioned, someone else has to wind it up for you. You can't take it off or it'll stop working for you and you can't wind it up because you can't reach the crank. And it's like, oh, prototypes. <laughs> this is bad design. Come on, buddy. He wakes up and he's like, what the hell am I going to do? He can't find Lucy, who's vanished. Although he does find a strawberry yogurt on the doorstep that he sure wasn't there when the clock started. So he's like, who's been moving around while time has been stopped? And this is where he meets up with Susan and the Death of Rats. They realise that you can't just break the clock because it's got this sort of weird field around it where things that touch it get sucked away or destroyed. Uh, it's Button not quite into a disc. Mm. Very apt. Yeah. Which they describe as uncertain death because they're not quite sure what's happening. Much worse than certain death. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know if it is, though, because uncertain death's like maybe you're not dead, but then yeah, that but, like, could be worse. worse if you're like... Not dead, but in some sort of like horrible alternative spliced universe or something, or like yeah, just trapped in the orbit of the clock. Or also the, yeah. the reveal later on that it doesn't necessarily kill the people who get sucked into it in that way. I also just found really fantastic because this is such a horrifying image of that kind of event horizon around the clock. That's true. Although it's yeah, it's not clear whether it would have had the same effect if they just touched it at that point, or whether yes, it if, required if, if what Susan happens later for it to work. Protected, yes. Yeah, so it's, I don't know, but I agree. Like, it's kind of nice that you're like, we're not sure what's happening. And then later on, something else happens. Yeah, it was great. The other people who are wandering around are the incarnated auditors who uh, have their own time field. And more and more of them have taken on human bodies to wander around examining things because their whole plan was to stop time so that things would stop being chaotic and changing all the time. Now that time has stopped, they're coming down to catalog everything and learn about everything by taking on human bodies in order to try and understand all the human stuff, which has so perplexed them in all their previous appearances. Not all of them, like it's shown in this book that there are literally billions of them, perhaps an infinite number, and there's only about 900 of them that incarnate in this. But still, that's a lot of them. There's not enough names for colours. <laughs> yeah, they run out of names for colours because they're just continuing Mr. Tope. Mr. Duck Avocado. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, and they argue about Isn't who gets color? which name. Oh, so, <laughs> such a human thing. I was just like reading that and going, yeah, because like theoretically naming people after colours means there's no hierarchy, but- of course, we'll find a hierarchy in any kind of labeling system. <laughs> it's great. Mm. Then they're all beheading each other and just having a great time tearing apart art. And you know, yeah. Do you, now here's my question about this because yeah, Susan and and Lobsang encounter one in the workshop and she kills it by knocking its head off and it kind of evaporates into nothing because it doesn't really bleed. It just as soon as the consciousness is gone, the body just stops being held together. 
Are they actually dying? Like, are those auditors dead? Or are they just being sent back to their discorporate form? Doesn't it? I think they're going back to their discorporate form was how I read it, because otherwise surely they'd be all a bit more angry about Mr. White decapitating so many of them. I thought it did say that they died, that something about them taking an individual form means that that form can, like, Mm. end effectively. I wish I'd made a note about this. Because they're all afraid. Like, they talk about how, like, seeing one of them get killed makes them afraid or that that really kind of fantastic sequence of someone experiencing severe pain mm. and that that created the negative anticipation of further pain so they're clearly afraid of dying in some sense in these forms it's interesting because like maybe it's like it's because they're all kind of like a collective hive mind beforehand and when they go into these bodies they become individuals so if you're separated from your body that self that formed in that body would die because mm. you would go back to being collective hive mind, no individuality. So, like, that part definitely dies so that you could be scared yeah. of losing that. Yeah, I don't know. This is covered, yeah. There were, of course, huge risks. Death was one of them. The auditors avoided death by never going so far as to get a life. Ah. They str- And this is one of my favourite lines, actually. They strove to be as indistinguishable as hydrogen atoms and with none of the latter's joie de vivre. And I was like, yes, <laughs> that's great. But, yeah, they say that a luckless auditor might be risking death by operating the body. But they say might, and I'm not really clear why, because they're operating the body. They certainly don't need to be inside it to do this. Like, they've got this ultimate control over matter. I felt it was a bit weird. I mean, they do kind of go out of their way to talk about how they've created and are experiencing consciousness for the first time as well in in that stuff about suddenly being able to perceive the universe as being divided into the part that's behind the eyes and the part that's not. I suppose to, to your comment, Liz, about the loss of individuality, it may not be kind of death as such, but it is a very existential terror that they've never had to experience before. They, they mm-hmm. suddenly have a self mm-hmm. for the first time. So whether or not that self can, quote-unquote, die they still are able to have the sense that that self could not, in theory, exist. Does that make sense? Yeah. And is it answered in some ways to what happens with Miss Lejeune when she becomes Unity later um, and then just jumping forward, does die and meets death? So, like, the individual part of her dies or is that separate from her auditor? I think she's a special case. But it's because she's been there longer, theoretically, mm, or is it... That's the sense I got. Because she seems to be a special case both in terms of, like, the length of time she's been there, but also she kind of embraces her individuality. I mean, she she, she becomes mm. almost my favourite character in, in the book yeah. uh, towards the end, and mm. she does kind of have a really powerful sense of self in a way that the other auditors are kind of fighting against. So that perhaps is what makes her able to die, to meet death. Yeah. Mm. Whereas I think the other auditors, like, they're destroyed or sent back to their own forms by this sensory overload. Like, it's as we're getting to, like, most of them die by being exposed to chocolate, right? Because <laughs> uh, it's too much. It's like they're, they're used to having a million senses, but it's all very analytical. It's the sense of a machine that measures things. Whereas then they put them in a human body and they've got just, you know, the regular five senses. The richness of that sensation is something they've never experienced before and it's too much for them. And I I wonder if the ones that they kill, like, it's not so much getting your head knocked off, which if it was an automaton body that was like looked human but wasn't real, they would just put their head back on. Like, it would be no big deal for them. But because it's a human body, when that happens, they experience the pain and the shock of the body knowing it's been killed. And that's what kind of makes them evaporate in a similar way to them eating the chocolate. I think there is a sensory component to it, but for me, the overriding impression I got was that it's a kind of existential thing. Like One of my favourite moments in the whole book, which I found just so horrifying, is in, in the scene at the end of the book where Unity dies. 
she says, well, I think it's that scene. She's talking to one of the other characters about the fact that all of the incarnated auditors are going to die in their sleep, in their mm. dreams. I just found that really horrifying and evocative as, as an image. And to me, that was almost the key to sort of understanding what their experience of sort of life and death hinged on was yeah. a sense of themselves as selves. So maybe it's like like an auditor in auditor form can't really die because of a hive mind, like that bit dies, but nothing is lost because it's a collective consciousness. But when it has inhabited a human body and it has individuality, mm. that individual that has been created, no matter what stage of development it's at, is lost. But the auditor part that goes away doesn't matter because the collective consciousness is unchanged. Yeah, I think that tracks with how I've read it. Yeah. Yeah. And what they're doing on Earth, though, is they, they're trying to use the human body's to experience things that humans understand that they don't. But they're still operating, the newer ones anyway, are operating in a very auditor way, like when they're in the museum and they're trying to, you know, deconstruct the painting into its component molecules and try and figure out where the beauty is, you know, that kind of stuff is so great. But that's that's where they end up, is they leave the workshop, Susan and Lobsang, and they head towards where he feels like he needs to be. Although, interestingly, he thinks he needs to be on Broadway, the street, which is on the other side of the museum, and they're just going to cut through it to get there, which is a bit weird because, you know, he ends up where he's meant to be, but it's not where he thought he's meant to be. I don't know. I liked it. There was a bit of Dirk gently It's not the destination. It's the journey that matters. Yeah, exactly. Don't we all want to be on Broadway? But they, <laughs> but they sneak through the museum. They have close calls with a whole bunch of incarnated auditors until eventually they are saved by the fact that someone set up an auditor trap with all these signs that are self-contradictory that make the auditors kind of pause and they find it very difficult, first of all, to disobey rules, but secondly, to understand rules that are seemingly nonsensical. These signs were so great. Oh, my God. Just, like, the keep left and it was pointing the other way and there's too many ways to read it and there's, like, the please don't feed the elephant but there's no elephant there. Or It reminds me, um, in where I work at 100 Story Buildings, this creative writing centre for kids, we put a lot of cool stuff in the space to try and engage with the students who come in to do workshops. But consistently, one of the most popular things that gets the best response out of them is a sign that I think one of the students who came to work with us made that just says, do not read this sign. <laughs> and we put it up. And any time a kid reads it, we just get, we get the opportunity to just do this massive pantomime of like trying to stand in front of it and stop them from reading it and going, no, you must not read the sign. They're like, but how are we supposed to know we're not supposed to read it unless we read it? And they just love it so much. Ignore this notice by order. Yeah. So that, and also a lot of the school stuff, because the kids that I work with are usually age seven to 12. So I'm familiar with the same sort of age range that Susan is teaching. And I'm like, yeah, I get all of this. This is totally what it's like. But yeah, the, the auditor trap was really fun. So um, in response to Duck, Susan says, ah, now we're getting metaphysical. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I Also, a nice shout out there possibly to the Duck Man. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And also, I don't know if you've seen the trailer for the upcoming fourth Matrix movie, but there's yes. a scene in it with Keanu Reeves sitting in the bath with a rubber duck on his head. And I thought this and I didn't say it. And then one of our listeners tweeted... A picture of it saying, what duck? <laughs> I was like, yes. <laughs> yes, that's what I thought too. Oh, so good. 
But yeah, the Auditor Trap turns out to have been created by Lady Lejeune, who has become even more human and is now like using chocolates to kill off the others whilst wearing a mask and gloves so she doesn't touch or smell them too much. I think this for her own protection is the thing that I got there. How did she even write the Auditor Traps without like dissolving her brain? Well, they don't die from the signs, right? They just get confused. But I agree, like, she's done very well <laughs> to equip herself with all this Which stuff. I feel like it's the, the kind of theme of her storyline for the, the rest of the book. She's done, given everything that's that's going on, she's doing really well. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, very impressive. Yeah. There's a great moment in the scene where she's trying to stall the other auditors and one of them says that they can't have tea because of religion and she yeah. <laughs> and she's impressed she's like oh wow that is a really impressive piece of creative thinking for an auditor yeah it's like genius level yeah, she has to stop herself <laughs> from applauding it was great that's protocol you must have tea because it's protocol and we can't because it's religion yeah, <laughs> yeah our religion also prevents us from eating ginger biscuits i'm like i don't want to be in that religion that sounds terrible oh that's a cult that forbids ginger biscuits and tea come on <laughs> she explains to them that she was there with the clock she and Jeremy left, although Jeremy was really weak and couldn't move very much. And they're like, well, how could he move at all? And this is when Susan kind of has to reveal that, well, look, um, you kind of have a brother. And there's that bit where that's a lie, but he's not even ready for the lie. It was weird that she opens with that and then we get part of the backstory. And I thought that was going to be strung out a bit longer until we found out what was really going on. But then we find out pretty much straight away that they're not really brothers. They're the same person who, because time was struggling with the whole concept of being human and giving birth, accidentally kind of skipped time and gave birth twice to the same person. And so there was two of them, but they're really the same and they've been put out in the world and they have to be raised as human for some reason. I feel like there was maybe a couple of steps in the explanation there that Mm. were left out. And again, I don't think it really mattered. Like narratively, emotionally, it was satisfying, but- for Star Wars reasons, we're sending you to different places. Yeah, we can't be raised together. But they sent them to guilds in the same city where they could have crossed paths. Like, they're not going to be far away from each other. they look the same. Also, like, what would have happened if it had been Jeremy who had somehow been detected and taken to the history once? But he hasn't mm. got that skill, has he? He's got different time skills. Yeah, he does. Or at least he only ever gets to use different ones. It's It's unclear. Here's a question, though. Were they put into the same time frame? Like, are they the same age? Because I kind of got a vibe off Jeremy that he's a bit older, maybe in his early 20s, because he's finished his apprenticeship. Yeah, I mean, I suppose it kind of implies that he's been kind of working on his own for longer. But the scene Mm. where we see Jeremy lying in Unity's attic, oh my god, also with the... uh, (laughs) small child. child. (laughs) Oh yeah, the frozen people. It's very good. Yeah, it's rough. Oh, very funny. But very funny. Very funny. Um, it, yeah. It's kind of... Uh, we don't do that. It's not polite. <laughs> no. How do you explain <laughs> something like that? It kind of describes how Jeremy looks and that, you know, different lines on his face and they've lived different lives. But I feel like that would have been a moment, I suppose, to reveal... I mean, it doesn't mean that it's not the case, but it would have been the moment to reveal that they were different ages, I suppose. It seems to just be implying that they live different lives. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Jeremy does seem older, but that could be the old guild thing of you do finish all your training by the time you're 12 or something, and then you go out and do your, your trade, because he's been there since he was a baby. Because the monks, I think, at one point talk about Lobsang being much older than any of the apprentices they would usually take on. 
He's like 17. Yeah, because they say he's too, like, very Star Wars Jedi style. He's too old to begin the training kind of stuff. They also indicate how gifted Jeremy was as a clockmaker. So he could Mm. also be. It's not really said. And I think we're meant to assume that they're the same age. It just occurred to me that that could explain a few things. Because while that's not a power that the history monks really have, like, they can't really travel back and forth in time to wherever they want. Wen certainly could with the help of time herself. So, Mm. um, and clearly has gone back several years because this is 10 days after Nanny was fetched to deliver them. But they've also been living for 16, 17 years in the real world, getting older. It just seems odd to not be like, okay, well, this is when they were born. Now we're going to drop them off to the guilds now. Like, why are we going to go back like 16 years specifically? Or was that like the golden age of like guild orphanage treatment or something? Like, it just seems an odd choice. Like, why go back such a short period of time? Well, maybe they knew that they needed to have come of age by this moment. And so Mm. they took them back that many years to make sure they were the right age at the right time. To be able to fix this exact problem. And create this exact problem. Well, yes, indeed. Mm. Fix and create. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, it really is a raw deal for everyone involved. I just kept thinking about like the whole book <laughs> describes time sort of in a in a way that I was not really into of just being this kind of grieving mother wandering around her mm. palace and then these mm. two kids, as I said, one of whom has really seems to have had quite a horrible life, all for the sake of essentially crafting someone to take over the job of being time like it's it's quite kinda of quite brutal. Yeah. When you pair it back to its core, it's not nice. And I would have liked to see a bit more motivation of why they sent the kids out into the world and why they didn't just automatically merge into one person after being born. Yeah. There's the indication that they need to, for some reason, be raised as normal humans. And I don't know whether that's because, well, it's mythic, right? Who knows? It doesn't really make any sense. And Nanny's suggestion is that they get put into a trade, you know, so that they at least learn something, which is, look, it's better than a lot of lives they could have had. Is it kind of like how the horsemen have all sort of become humanized in some way? Because death keeps going on about how they've all been shaped by humans, like how war was created by humans and all of them basically were crafted that way, whereas time seems to exist entirely outside of humans. But now mm. the new time is half human, half mythic. So it could be to do with that somehow. It's very sort of Neil Gaiman endless kind of thing, isn't it? I I I don't know that. I'm I'm... I cannot understand your reference. I'm sorry. Well, in the, so in the Sandman, I don't want to give too much away because this is kind of a massive spoiler for something that happens later on, but there's the idea of the endless who are much like the anthropomorphic personifications. And there is one of death. There's seven of them, if I remember rightly, and they've all got names starting with D. The one that's the main character of the comics is Dream. Um, so Mm. they're a bit different. Like the concepts that they embody are not the same ones as, as we see here, but one of the incarnations does die and gets replaced during the course of the story and the person who replaces them is kind of a human but who's also born with some sort of special stuff that makes them able to take on that role it's kind of a similar setup Mm. but yeah i agree it's not entirely clear but once this revelation is made that they are the same person susan asks lob saying well you know this is where you're supposed to be do you know what you're supposed to do and he reaches out and touches jeremy and they merge into a being of you know blue light um, a sort of like two ribbons of blue light flowing around the air. Um, like and DNA. Become, yeah. Oh, oh, I did not think of that. But yes, it is kind of like that, isn't it? Uh, mm-hmm. But they become like the incarnation of time, basically. But they're not quite at their full strength. They're still sort of figuring stuff out. And also an important point is that now that they have access to the powers of time, they can see every conceivable timeline that ever exists or could exist. 
And the one thing that's keeping them anchored in this moment of this time where they need to be to save time is Susan. It's not quite clear why that is, but it is said that that's the case. Hmm. They realize that what they've got to do is get back to the clock, which means getting past all of the auditors. And Lob saying slash Jeremy, who eventually says that when he sort of reintegrates into one person, would prefer to be known as Lob saying. So I guess we can just call him Lob saying from this point on. Hmm. Can't really access many of their powers because they're sort of still dealing with what they've become. Uh, but they do know that they need to get back to the clock. And so they head back there. And meanwhile, Lucy's been hanging out with the dairyman, Ronald Soak, the fifth horseman of the apocalypse, the one who left before they got famous, the Pete Best yeah. of the apocalypse. <laughs> oh, such a funny concept. I'm pretty sure this is a footnote joke in a previous book. He deduces his identity, not just as the fifth horseman, but the embodiment or avatar, as he prefers to be called, of chaos. Uh, spelled with a K. Which is also your cat's name. Yes. Not named after this chaos, as far as I know, although when my partner got him from the shelter, this was already his name, so we will never know. Maybe they were big Pratchett fans. He then starts to goad him into getting involved because he's said that I don't do that stuff anymore. I'm just a dairy man, and the most I'll do for you is drop you back off where I found you. And as he's doing this, this is when Lutzi works out his name, tells him who he is, and then starts to goad him, like appealing to his vanity, basically, and just sort of riling him up. And also talking to him about the fact that humans may have forgotten their fear of chaos they had back in the days before they'd even invented gods. It's a nice aside that chaos says, you know, they were afraid of me. That's why they invented gods in the first place. But one of the things he tells him is that he's become important again. Because basically the abbot has really gotten into chaos theory and is explaining you know, the quantum nature of the world and time and everything through that sort of stuff. And he sort of explains to him a bit about how that works. That both confuses Ronnie, but also gets him a bit interested. And eventually, yeah, he gets goaded into taking part. Because meanwhile, death has turned up to ride out against the auditors up in space. But he's by himself until an angel arrives who's like part of the prophecy. <laughs> And it's like, this isn't how it's supposed to go. Look at my iron book. Very book of revelations. But then the other horsemen do turn up. They've had a change of heart. They realize that they all have things that are important to them. They do want to go on this last ride with death, even if it doesn't work out. The auditors are waiting for them to do it. This is part of the rules that when there's the end of the world, they're supposed to show up. But then death kind of turns it around on them and says, yeah, it doesn't say who we're supposed to ride out against. We're going to fight you. They're fighting off the auditors, but it's not going well because they've all become a bit too human and the auditors are able to kind of prey on their human fears and foibles uh, and make them feel uncertain of themselves. Which is a facet of the auditors that's mentioned a few times that I really love as well, that kind of leaning back on order and law as a response to fear, which COVID has had me thinking a lot about. Yes. Mm. Yeah, they'd be having a field day with this right now. Mm. Oh, God, yeah. They're the worst. I think this is a thing in fiction, particularly fantasy fiction, when we externalize a lot of these forces and say, oh, yeah, there's these things acting on us. I think Pratchett has got a really deft hand at doing that while also never excusing humans and saying this is part of us that we can choose mm. to overcome. Like he's so much about, you know, you have a choice. You don't have to act this way. And it's even present, yeah, in this scene with the horsemen where they're starting to feel these feelings and death is telling them, is that you thinking that or is that them? Like, where's this influence coming from? So they still have to think about it and make a choice to do something different. It's a sometimes a little blurred line there maybe between that excuse that it's not you, it's something bigger than you or it's something inherent to you that you can't change. 
but also you can change it or you can choose to overcome it. But that to me kind of sums up everything that I love about his perspective on the world. I mean, there are forces bigger than us that act on us and influence the Mm. ways that we think and act, but to totally cast off the idea that we have choices in the way that we respond to those things is in and of itself perhaps immoral. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Uh, But they get a real boost when Ronnie turns up in his new guise as Chaos, having re-spelled his name, (laughs) or at least embodied the more modern idea of Chaos. And I love that detail where he's got the helmet that's like got eye holes that look like butterfly wings. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And joins them. Yeah, which I thought was a lot of fun. It's just like the surprise boost of having Chaos be the enemy of the guys who want to do filing, like who destroyed the world because they want to just do a bit of a spring clean. It's very neat. It's very Moorcocky and law versus chaos. Like in Dungeons and Dragons, you know, you have the alignment axis of good versus evil and law versus chaos. And the law versus chaos part of that comes from the books of Michael Moorcock, where that's the big metaphysical battle. It's not about good versus evil. It's about law versus chaos. What's the deal with the angel, though? Like, because his whole vibe is like actor who's been written out of like a, a draft and he's been like preparing for us the whole time and no one's told him that his scene's cut. Yeah. And I was just like, it's very funny, but I'm like, why is this? But there's that great, almost like just for that moment where he's talking to Mrs. War and he pulls off his halo to help prize oh, open the, <laughs> the pages that are melted together. And it's just, yeah, he's like, oh, we're in for it now. <laughs> yeah. It's a bit of fun, you know. A fronted actor was the, the <laughs> energy that I got from him. So yeah. It was very, you know, if I can put one more funny thing into this scene, I'll do it. Energy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that I is his attitude. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm supposed to blow the trumpet. <laughs> oh, so good. But look, we're in the sort of end game now. So I'm going to kind of summarize the end with a bit of help from Lob saying a little bit of help from their friends. Susan and Lejean, who gets a new name, she gets the new name Unity, manage to get past the auditors. They get close to the old workshop where they need to go and there's auditors in the way and they realise that they need to do something surprising in order to distract them because they can't deal well with surprises. And this is where they meet up with Lucy, who's like, okay, I got this. And they're very blunt. Like, there's a whole bit where they're like, yeah, he's going to die. And, th- and they're like, oh, was that a bit blunt? Like, well, should we not say he's going to die? And he's like, look, I am going to die. I get it. But that's, that's a bit rude. They kill a bunch of them with chocolates, but he distracts them by getting his head cut off, basically, and making them argue about what rule one is, which is very funny. But as soon as he got his head cut off, I was like, okay, I know what's happening here. He's going to use the save button, which he does. And he comes back and helps them some more. They get into the workshop and they go up to the clock and Lobsang feels strong enough now that he can get in there. And for him, it's a portal to home. It's a, a portal to the dimension where time lives. And when they get there, Susan goes with him. They discover that Wen is there with time. Lobsang goes off to talk to his mum and learn about the job. And Wen talks to Susan about the nature of the realm that they're in and what's happened and he seems like a nice guy, you know, he doesn't seem like he's been a jerk about the whole thing. And everyone seems quite happy, like it's all it's all quite reconciled. And this bit made me think about the way Susan talks about her experience of finding out what she is and where her non-human parts come from. Because she's sort of a bit upset because there was no one there to help her. But later on, she's a bit more sympathetic and is like, well, actually, I had quite a nice introduction to it because my early memories are of feeding Death's horse and visiting my granddad who just happened to be Death. It was actually all right. And I I hope that that sort of is a bit of a reconciliation for her. She sees how else it could have gone Mm. um, in a way that, you know, is not horrible, but also is not ideal for Lobsang and Jeremy. 
Hmm. But they had a not a great time. I personally think it was pretty horrible. <laughs> yeah. Look, yeah, I, I'm not saying I would like it to happen to me. Uh, <laughs> Jeremy particularly, but... Yeah, he does not seem to have had a good life. Poor old Jeremy. But look, they sort of make up and Lob's saying, basically, I'm going to take over as time. And uh, my mum's going to retire with my dad and then just going to live somewhere nice forever. And you're like, oh, that's, that's kind of cute. Okay. Yeah, I'm into this. So he goes back into the world and he has to destroy the clock to restore time. But once again, that shatters history. But this time, time is on the case, so to speak. And they go back to the monastery at Oidong and use the procrastinators to put history back together again the way it was. Hmm. That's kind of the climax and the end of the main plot. We've left out a couple of things before this. There's the whole thing with Mr. White and the other auditor incarnates trying to hurt each other and find cheese and basically <laughs> causing mayhem as they try to understand humanity and um, what's going on in the world. The key pillars of human life, causing pain and cheese. Yes. <laughs> Do not cause cheese. Lobsang goes back to the monastery to kind of complete his apprenticeship. And Lucy says, well, you're no longer my apprentice. You've learned everything you need to know. And Lobsang is quite humble about it, but I just want to know, and the reason I've come back is I just want to know what the fifth surprise is. <laughs> He's like, I can't leave without knowing. And I can't, I don't just know everything. And I don't know what the answer to this well, is. He says he, he doesn't want to be able to know that. He wants to Oh, yeah, that's surprise. right. He wants to do it the right way. Mm. Yeah, that's mm. right. <laughs> it's so good. I love how Lucy uses this to increase his legend even more because he says, Look, I'll tell you, but you have to go with me into the Iron Dome, which is basically like the Thunder Dome. It's a nasty dojo where you only go in there to fight to the death. Why they have this, who knows? It's not explored. It's just a cliche <laughs> of martial arts stuff. He's kind of intimating like he's not going to do it, not really going to have the fight, but he's promised that they're going to go in there. He shows him the final surprise, which is just like a Groucho mask, disguise mask, where he puts it on and goes, <laughs> and you're like, this is great. This it's very is so surprising. It's very he said, I didn't say it was a good surprise. <laughs> you know, very it was an funny. excellent surprise. So stupid, but I loved it. But then he yeah. reveals that actually he does know the mystic martial arts. In fact, he knows one of the comedy martial art names used earlier in the book. He knows Deja Fu which I have a suspicion might have been used as a gag in another Discworld book. But in any case, he uses it to defeat him in a fight and increase his status because now everyone's seen Lutzi the Sweeper defeat Time itself. Mm-hmm. Although Time itself, Lobsang does say that he wants to you know, become a proper monk, but he doesn't want to become a normal monk. He just wants to become a sweeper. And there's this whole hilarious sequence where that derails the sort of monk adornment ceremony. <laughs> Which was and I very love that funny. Lucy then gives him crap for it, being like, look, it's nice up to a point, but it was a bit smug. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was great. Because it was true. Yeah. And then the other kind of two kind of aftermath sequences, one is kind of very sad, you know, like mm. Unity, as she's now become known, is just like, I can't stay. Like, I don't belong here. I can't go back to being an auditor because I betrayed them all. And I can't stay here. I'm not really a human being and this isn't going to work out for me. So, Ronnie, soak chaos in his dairy, brews up a massive vat <laughs> of liquid chocolate and she drowns in it. It's like a very literal death by chocolate. And I was kind of waiting for her to, like, survive it and come out and go, actually, this is great. That's not what happens. She actually does die and then goes into the afterlife and death greets her. And she's like, wait a minute, I died. He's like, yeah, this is what comes next. And I think either he's doing this for her as something he can give her the equivalent afterlife existence. And now you can go off and find out what's next for you. 
or she'd become human enough that that happened naturally. I'm not sure which one, but I don't think it really matters. It felt like the right end for her. I'm just like, how do you deal with that body, though? Like, your dead body in a pile of chocolate? <laughs> I think chaos will fix it. <laughs> well, I wonder whether it might have exploded into... Oh, Mines, evaporated yeah. like the other ones, yeah. Because, like, Vimes would short... Like, because it's, it's the era of Ankh-Morpork where you can't just, like, throw a body in the ankh and it's fine. Like, because mm. if there was a dead body... <laughs> <laughs> cauldron of chocolate. Yeah, and we know that because, like, when Lobsang and Lucia are first coming into Ankh-Morpork, there's a fight going on in the street between the watch and some other people, and that's where Lobsang almost touches an arrow and breaks the core rule of time slicing, which is you don't touch moving objects or living things. Is there much of a difference between throwing a body into a vat of chocolate and throwing a body into the Ankh? Just the taste. <laughs> yeah, the taste, one, yes. one, one you'd eat afterwards. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> Or one you'd eat before, maybe, is more accurate. Yeah. Not the other one. Not the dead body chocolate, no. <laughs> but then the last thing that happens is we rejoin Susan back at the school, who has gone back to work and had a very nice day where she's taken the kids to visit Nanny Og, and they've learned many educational things, including the difficult <laughs> words of the hedgehog song. And there's a couple of moments before this where Unity talks to Susan when they're alone before it's quite all fixed. And asks her, you know, did you think there'd be something romantic going on between the two of you? And Susan doesn't want to answer it. There's also a moment when he tells her that he's going to take over his time and so he's not going to continue existing in the world. That she realises that she's sort of gotten excited about him being there and then her heart drops. And how does this whole possible romance, because the last thing that happens is she gets a message from him that they might get to hang out in the future. How yeah. do we feel about that? It landed badly for me, I think, partly because there's a sort of a bit of a trope running through the book that Susan, despite being this extremely put-together person, has this kind of weaknesses for chocolate and things like that. And even some of that, I wasn't quite sure how I felt about it. A bit of it was kind of fine, but that kind of constant undermining of her, it felt like a bit of a kind of gendered trope in a way that I wasn't super into. Mm. And so, like, having her story kind of be concluded with a sort of romantic streak, I also felt a bit uncomfortable about in the same way. Although, to be honest, discussing it as we've been talking now, I could almost generously read it more as, like, not being a romantic thing so much as just losing perhaps this one person who she could relate to, which I think is really something quite lovely. Because, the I, yeah, I I don't like the idea that the only way that story could progress between them would be even the hint of romance. I completely agree. I don't think it should be romantic, and I didn't really get that vibe, because if it was, it's kind of like that we're the last two people left on Earth and we must be together kind of thing. But I do think she was genuinely sad, because like you were saying, it's they're two people with lived experience that couldn't be understood, probably, by anyone else. That they're sort of half foot in the supernatural world, half of it in the human world, and to lose the chance to have someone who gets that, because that's why I think all her walls are up. She's alone. Because like, even Death doesn't quite understand it because he lives fully in one world and everyone else around her lives fully in another. She's the only one who's in both. Maybe she'd have some stuff to say to Albert, actually. Who knows? But it's not really the same. I just feel like it's the loss of- Shipping Susan and Albert? No. <laughs> no, thank you. I, I ship Susan with no one. I think she's great on her Indeed. own. But yeah, I think it's a bit of a cop-out to be like the only relationship they could have is a romantic one. I would like them to have contact- and solidarity and maybe, like, a really good friendship. Like, if that developed into romance, fine, but it shouldn't be, like, its default 
she only had romantic intentions because that's not what it is it's just like oh there's someone who gets it like this, mm. this. yeah i do disagree on one point though about the chocolates i was originally on board with that but i think it's kind of like a nod to her mother like isabel because she always had like mm. trays of chocolates all around oh, death right. domain so I, I kind of was like oh is that like a thing she's gotten from her like that's like the little bit of her mortal mother like peeking through but they did do it a bit over the top like she cannot possibly resist chocolates like we're in the middle of this thing we're fighting for our lives and she's like but i have to have a handful of these delicious chocolates yeah yeah that is a nice nod i hadn't thought of that but that's that's cool the way that it's written at the end where unity asks her you know did you think you'd get romantic with him because i've kind of felt the same way about jeremy she sort of says i'm not answering that question and you could read that i mean i think the obvious way to read it and probably the way that pratchett intended it although you know of course we can't know this for sure is that she did have romantic feelings but doesn't want to talk about them. But I think also you can read it as how typical of you to think that's the only thing. I don't want to talk to you about this because you're clearly closed-minded about it, whereas actually I just wanted a friend who understood. Hmm. I would like Susan to have more friends, and I feel like both this book and Hogfather at the end like kind of makes me feel like she should be better at having friends. And, you know, you can't spend all your time around children. You need adult friends too. And I hope that she finds some. And maybe, you know, maybe Lucy could be a friend in the real world as well. I think he would get it to a certain extent. And her and Angua would have a a nice sort of card game. Yeah, I mean, I I think she would get along very well with some of the other protagonists from the books who wouldn't necessarily fully get her situation, but have some weird thing going on that means they would get it to some Mm. extent. Agnes. Adora Bell Deerheart from the Golem Trust. Though having said what I've said, um, I would absolutely read the hell out of a thruple book between like Unity, Time, and Susan. Like that would be amazing. <laughs> well, he can be in two places at once, so you know they they don't even have to be a thruple if they don't want to. <laughs> no, but that's specifically one I want to read. Okay, sure, <laughs> that's fair. I'll pay that. I did broadly love the interactions between Susan and Unity. I thought that was such a kind of lovely little friendship that developed. And in fact, I sort of talked a bit earlier about how I had some reservations about both Lobsang and Jeremy as these kind of protagonists and i almost feel like as soon as lobsang disappears it allows susan and then unity as well to come forward to the center of the plot in a way that i really really enjoyed in that final section yeah because they were like backgrounded a bit you're right that kind of brings us to the end of the plot though there's so much in this book listener i know we've probably left out one of your favorite bits We've definitely left out some of mine. (laughs) It's hard. It's too hard. But we do want to try and get a few of our favorite bits in before we answer some questions. So are there any favorite bits that we want to comment on or quotes that we want to read out before we move on to listener questions? All of it was just like one long favorite bit. (laughs) So good. (laughs) It's hard. It's hard to pick a favorite. I do just want to give a bit more of a shout out to Madame Frout and the (laughs) Madame Frout method of learning through fun. Very compatible with how I think about the teaching adjacent work. I should point out I am not a teacher, but I do teach adjacent kind of work in the um, creative writing. Teach adjacent, yeah. Teach adjacent. Very difficult. Uh, God, yeah. We've all we've all had adjacent. I think we've covered the moments that I really really love, but I do have a few quotes that made me laugh a lot. I don't know how you feel about me having a crack at reading an Igor quote. Oh, please! I would would love that. Please. (laughs) So it's it's Igor talking to Jeremy about his CV. Jeremy says, this one is signed by someone called Mad Dr. Scoop. He said, oh, he wasn't actually named Mad, sir. It was more like a nickname, as it were. Was he mad then? Who can say, sir? Said Eagle calmly. And crazed Baron Haha. It says under reason for leaving that he was crushed by a burning windmill. Case of mistaken identity, sir. Really? Yes, sir. I understand the mob mistook him for screaming Dr. Berserk, sir. (laughs) 
Just like screaming <laughs> Dr. Berserk. <laughs> so good. Such a good quote. Oh. Uh, Igor, I just wanted more Igor through the whole book because every moment he was in was just great. <laughs> the other quote I wanted to read was from the very first section of the book where he's talking about where stories can or should begin and he says supposing an emperor was persuaded to wear a new suit of clothes whose material was so fine that to the common eye the clothes weren't there and suppose a little boy pointed out this fact in a loud clear voice then you have the story of the emperor who had no clothes but if you knew a bit more it would be the story of the boy who got a well-deserved thrashing from his dad for being rude to royalty and was locked up or the story of the crowd who were rounded up by the guards and told this didn't happen okay does anyone want to argue (laughs) Yeah. And actually that intro stuff about stories is one of the things that made me feel really strongly that the ideas that went into this novel were also the ideas swimming around the science of Discworld 2, which is the whole point of that book is to say that stories are what makes humans different from other animals. But it was so good that bit at the start. I'd like to give a quick nod to when, um, because we didn't get to spend as much time with Nanny Og as I would have liked in this podcast, but there's a lot of things that would have been great to spend a lot of time in. But quick nod to when Susan first gets to her house and she's seeing it doesn't look like a witch's house and she's looking at all the garden gnomes and there's a one who's who's fishing. Oh, wait, no, he's... And then the there's a pause between hearing that and finding out what he's doing that just allows your imagination to run wild with what... What is this gnome doing? And he's and he's like whittling in the pond and many of makes a big point of being like, it'd just be glad he's not doing anything more than whittling in the pond. And I'm like what? Yeah, I love that description of when she looks in Nanny's eyes and there's a little twinkle and she just knows. There's more. There's worse. This, this lady definitely chose that that gnome is not a mistake. Oh, I love that. That was great. Yeah. I quite liked Nanny in this book. She is a bit different to how you see her in the witches' books, but at the same time, I feel like when Granny makes a cameo, Granny's the same because Granny doesn't change who she is based on who she's talking to. But Nanny is not the same as a witch on her own as she is around Granny and Magrat and whoever else. So I feel like this is maybe a glimpse of what she's normally a bit more like when she's doing a witch thing by herself, which I thought was really cool to see. Yeah. She's so endlessly competent and confident, but that's the thing. Like, she's so confident that she allows Granny to be the one who's in charge when she doesn't need that. Yeah. Probably because she's pushing around her cabal of daughters-in-laws. She gets enough power that way. But we really see her kind of witchy power in a way that's really fun and a bit kind of scary at times as well. Yeah, Yeah, totally. The way she talks to Susan is so good. I love seeing young her, even just for that, like, half a page. Yeah. She's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to just adjust the cleavage in case it's a gentleman at the door. And then, <laughs> That's great. And then the next one, she's been married twice. Like, it's just, yeah, it's great. Oh, the best. There's a lot of great wordplay in this book. I think Pratchett has, um, he, he also enjoys coining a few words. So, uh, he's got uh, pre-membered <laughs> is in there. And also substition as the opposite of a superstition, <laughs> something that is true, but most people don't believe it. I thought that was great. <laughs> There's also, like, there's some classic Pratchett stuff in terms of how he turns around a few things, like when the monk Soto, who, by the way, is named after a person who won a charity auction to have a character named after him in a Discworld book. I found that out. That was really cool. He offers Lob saying the opportunity of a lifetime. <laughs> and like, no, I'm offering you a lifetime. <laughs> like, yeah, that was good. And also the bit where it talks about death being proverbially a good horseman. (laughs) I'm like, yeah, like in the Proverbs (laughs) about, yeah, that was very funny. The rules of the dojo, although it's not clear who makes up the rules, but like rule one, 
Rule three was really great because it's not explicitly stated what it is, but it's implied to be if you're holding a deadly weapon and facing an unarmed man in a pose of submission, you're the one who should be frightened. Very much reminded me of uh, the Doctor Who story, The Happiness Patrol, where there's a great scene in it where Sylvester McCoy playing the seventh Doctor just talks a guy with a gun out of shooting him. And part of that is saying, you're the one with a gun. Why are you the one who's afraid? And it's very, don't underestimate the little old man kind of deal. It's very good. Look, there's so many bits. I want to read out so many and talk about so many <laughs> things, but I just, just cannot. Oh, there were a couple of things that didn't quite make sense to me that I'll just quickly mention. Jeremy says when they're about to activate the clock, I see no reason why every clock in the world shouldn't say precisely the same time. I'm like, Jeremy you know that it's not exactly the same time everywhere on the world. Like, even on the Discord, there's a slightly weird thing for you to say, but I think I know what he means, is that they'll all be in sync with each other. Although how he intends to achieve that is not actually clear. But the idea behind the glass clock is so analogous to actual atomic clocks in our world, which is that your clock on your computer is not run by an atomic clock, but it syncs itself with a time server, which is corrected by an atomic clock so that it's supremely accurate. So... There's similar ideas. That's what he wants to achieve. How he would do that in the disc world is unclear, but that's okay. Maybe there's a way they could rig up the clacks to send synchronization messages or something. Oh, and the idea of having a C-mail address that pops up in this <laughs> so book. <laughs> and the only one that we see is a very strange format for a C-mail address because it's, um, it's the address for We Are Igorth which we haven't even mentioned, like the the Igor placement <laughs> um, agency. <laughs> so great. But they have a C-mail address, which is something like Yathmatha, which, yeah, I really, that was great. So we're sorry if we didn't read out your favorite, but, you know, who knows? Maybe we'll, maybe this is a terrible good... and we just are disrespectful of <laughs> Yeah, we just tell people's you all. No, um, maybe, maybe, you know what we should do? Like we should do a bonus episode or an episode of Oot Club at some point, which is just us going back to old books and reading out and talking about our favorite bits that we didn't get to. Like, that mm. would be a lot of fun. Uh, if you'd like to hear us do that, let us know. We always want to know what you want us to do. And if you've got any questions or responses to this episode, the hashtag to use is Pratchat48. So, please do that. But look, let's get to some listener questions. There's so many of them. They're so good. We will try and record answers to as many of them as we can, but they won't all end up in the podcast. We just will not have time. All right. So the first question comes from Naomi via Twitter. If you were an auditor in human form, which sensory overload would you choose to end it all? Or is a vat of chocolate the perfect choice? What an amazing question. <laughs> yeah, we got a few questions sort of along these lines, but I think this is, this is maybe my favorite. Well, what, what would you do? Is the vat of chocolate the way you'd want to go? I'm lactose intolerant, so I guess I'd combine that with like my like a, a really epic cheese board, just like a just all of the cheeses yes. you could possibly get, like a big variety of them, because like even one cheese can be a bit of a sensory overload, and they're so different, and they already sort of get into the cheese territory, like they're very interested in cheese, so I feel like having not thought long and hard about it, cheese seems like a good one for me. I'd be happy with that. Mm. Yeah, I'm done with yeah. cheese. <laughs> you can join my me in my cheese in a, board in order. A lot of different directions. <laughs> I, I was trying to think about this. I haven't always been a vegetarian, and I used to really enjoy some particular kind of meat things. And I, I think that would have been my answer back then. But now I think it's cake. I really love a really, really good cake, particularly a really nice cheesecake. Yeah. Nice to be on the cheese board. Yeah, so I feel like <laughs> that would be a, would be a big cake for me. Ooh, with like a, if it's a cheesecake, you get the, the crumb bottom that's also, um, like choc chip cookie crumbs. Oh, like, so yeah. yeah, it's really, with a bit of rum, like pour it over. It's just, oh. it's so good. 
You're going to kill us right now, Liz. Yeah, I, just, <laughs> I can't have it. The lactose. But yeah, I can describe it. That's all right. I, did. I feel like that's a good lead-in to another question, mm. which is Joel from Discord saying, how much chocolate was harmed during your read-through? Please be honest. <laughs> uh, and I have to, I'm going to honestly say, actually none. I mean, we're still in lockdown in Melbourne. We can't like sort of frivolously go to the shops for chocolate just whenever you want. So I, I resisted the urge, but I w- I'll be honest, I really want some chocolate. This book has done that to me and I'm going to buy some. <laughs> and listener, I did. I also think nougat got a, a, a bad rap in this yeah. book. I, lo- I love a, a bit of nougat, but I take the point about not wanting it to ambush the unsuspecting by being disguised in chocolate. Yeah. Is, and the rule about, like, if you have a chocolate that you didn't want, it doesn't count as one of the... 100%. Yeah, because it's, it's just not fair if you get, like, what is it, one of those, like, inferior fruity liqueur ones oh, that yeah. just doesn't taste either like liqueur or fruit. It's like anything yeah. that you eat in an airport doesn't count. Yeah. <laughs> That one I haven't heard before, but I approve. I actually seem to be immune to the chocolate urge from this book, but I suspect that's because I, in some ways, vaccinated against it by always maintaining a low level of chocolate all the time. (laughs) You keep your chocolate levels high enough. Yeah, that. So, like, an assaultive desire for chocolate doesn't have anything, like, my immune system's ready. Your chocolate patch is is always on. (laughs) Yeah, it's like, oh, no, you had some very recently. You're okay. Right, so the next question comes from a chew and sneezed via Twitter, who sent through a lot of really great observations and questions. We're going to have to choose just one. Susan comes across as nearly unlikable in this one, which is not how I've ever felt about her before. Did you feel that as well? So we've sort of touched on that a little bit, but I think it's something we can expand on a little. I thought she was great. I like. I, <laughs> I just I find her. I think I think I had a really similar read to you, Liz, which is that anything that does come off as kind of like unlikability as such is says more about kind of how she wants to present herself to the world than some inherent lack of kindness or something like that Mm. i thought a lot about her interactions with the students many of which i really loved and we didn't really get a chance to talk about but that i mean she's a bit mean to the i can't remember the kid's name who has his hand up all the time but is it nigel vincent vincent Vincent. yes that's right but she also has that moment, which maybe you could read as partly her trying to spite Vincent as well, but that lovely moment of rewarding Penelope for, like, the surprisingly philosophically complex answer. Like, she reminds me of teachers I really liked in high school who were very, very strict, but also rewarded serious engagement and genuine, I don't know, having a crack, I guess. So I feel like she may be tough, but there's a kind of goodness to her that I always felt that never made her unlikable to me. I feel like she has, like, in her teaching, she always has the children's best interests at the core of what, yeah. and that's what drives her behavior. So even if it is prickly or severe, because I also had teachers like that as well, who I always liked a lot. But um, because her intentions seem to be good, I don't mind that it comes across as severe. And, I, and as a result, I didn't find it unlikable. And in her personal life, just to expand on what I was saying a bit before, it feels a bit like if I put up this prickly exterior, people won't like me. But that means that it's because of how I choose to act rather than them not liking me or being rejected for other reasons. So it's, again, a protective suit of armor. Mm. There's a line, I think... Uh, maybe it's when she's talking to when towards the end where he he says something like you cling to logic like a, a limpet clings to a rock during a storm or something like that clearly kind of indicating that it, she has cultivated this quite carefully hmm. yeah it's protective yeah. i feel like and because she's probably actually very very vulnerable because she is yeah you know, she's lost a lot and she's very alone as like goes with the whole why she would be interested in pursuing a relationship of any kind with Love saying because she's very alone in the world. Yeah. 
Look, I agree with most of that. I feel like in this one, she crosses a few lines that made me feel quite uncomfortable about her. The big one being when she violates Madame France's privacy for seemingly no reason. Like, just reads through all her private papers, including the ones she keeps in the safe, without really needing to, being, as she acknowledges herself, cruel to her by making her think she'd forgotten a letter that she'd already received. And I think that particularly hit home for me because I'm like, that is a mean thing to do to someone, like particularly if they're getting on a bit in years to make them think that they're more forgetful than they are. Like that could be particularly awful for someone. And the way she treats adults in this book, I agree she's great with the kids and I like most of the ways that she interacts with them. But the way she treats adults and talks about other humans is quite disdainful. She comes out and says at one point she thinks people should have to pass an exam to have children. And I'm like, that's not an okay thought. Like, I understand where that comes from. And all of us, I think, at some point have thought something along those lines in our lives. But also, I think we all come to a point in our development where we understand why that is truly an awful idea. Because who is assessing that exam? Who's making the decision about who's good enough and who's not? And she really comes across in this book like, I'm good enough. I can make that decision. And I didn't like that about her. So I I was borderline. My read on that, and that's completely valid and really interesting way to put it as well, is because she's Death's granddaughter as well. So she is kind of elevated above human because she's not a human necessarily. And there could be a bit of like, I am like someone who gets to make these. Well, Death doesn't make judgments, but like that ties in with her violating the privacy of Mr. Frout to me as well. Because Death can has books full of people's lives that you can just peruse and see every single thing that's ever happened to them. You know when they're going to die. You know all this stuff. It might just be like in-baked Hmm. death granddaughter stuff like that you get to know these things and it's normal because that's just who i am at my core hmm. i mean he doesn't though that's the thing is that he doesn't go and read people's journals just for fun like he only- isabel did yeah so again maybe that's her mother's influence i don't know but as i'm not saying that, that makes it okay i'm just saying that that might be where it comes from yeah okay and the, I guess there are quite a few moments, and I think, again, in the comparison between her and Lucy as well, like her resistance to the idea of a perfect moment, that there are lots of kind of things towards the end of the book where it's kind of trying to kind of chip away at not her sense of herself, I guess, but the ways in which her viewing the world and treating people in these ways does maybe say more about her than it does her sense that she has this objectively correct view about what the world is and how it works. Mm. Also, since she's so in tune with death and inevitability and possibly she'll live longer than other people, maybe you do need to have a bit of a remove from humans as a thing. Otherwise, you will go crazy knowing that everyone around you is going to die. So you have to kind of be like, well, look, they're a bit shit. Like, so that's okay that they're going to trot off this mortal coil before I do. And I'm going to see it happen pretty much. So that could, again, be a protective thing. Because, like, death couldn't live among humans, like, full-time and not go crazy, surely. Mm, no, true. Although it's not clear in her case, because I feel like she is going to age like a normal person, at least to a certain point. I certainly felt sympathy for her when she realised that I thought I was going to meet someone like me, which, romantic interest or not, is a big deal. I remember moving from the country to a big city and meeting other people who were into the same nerdy stuff as me. It was huge. You know, like, you go from this small pool of people who you have very little in common with and some of whom you still quite like, but then you meet this much bigger pool of people and you find your folks, you know, you find your people who really are kind of like you in important ways. And it's a big deal. So I I definitely felt for her on that. And I think that won me back around for her a bit. And the little moments of kindness that she shows, particularly to um, Unity, but also um, Lobsang, because she's quite mean to Lobsang when she first meets him. But <laughs> yeah, she comes around. 
All right. So this next question comes from Joel Mullen via Discord. Is this the scariest the auditors ever are? Or are they just a silly bunch? Which I love the phrasing of that. <laughs> it's a bunch of sillies. <laughs> There's another person, Amy, on Twitter who thought that she got like vibes from the auditors in this book that they're kind of like the agents in the Matrix. And I was thinking the exact same thing. Mm. In that they're all meant to be identical and they're all meant to be doing their thing. And then one or two of them like go a bit crazy and become a bit more weird. So they're like Agent Smith or one of the other rogue programs. And I was like, yeah, that was the feeling that I got. They're not as scary except for moments. Like Mr. White is pretty scary. Mm. It's like you're meant to be a being of pure logic and observation and you're given a human body and you become a psychopath. This is not okay. And you don't have a human morality behind that, but you're being informed by bits of human existence because you've got a human body. Like, that was quite unsettling. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if I'd say that they were frightening. Well, I almost think that the insight into the implications of being an auditor that Unity gives us, and I think I mentioned earlier that moment of her describing that they would die in their dreams, I found that stuff really frightening. So it's kind of not... You know, they are by definition this faceless kind of innumerable enemy, but she kind of helps us understand the ways that maybe they as a whole are not scary as such, but gives us insight into the terrifying implications of their existence. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's almost like they're not the frightening thing, but their presence shows some frightening things, if that makes sense. Like, it's it's not necessarily that the horror is what they do and who they are. It's more that the horror is what happens to them as a result of what they do. I don't, I don't know if I'm phrasing that right, but... Also that stuff about, like, putting the kind of, like, uh, there should be a law stuff into people's heads, that to me was also genuinely terrifying. Oh, yeah. That was creepy. I did find, like, their time on Earth to be, like, them being a silly bunch with a bit of gore. But <laughs> I think <laughs> the thing that I found quite scary about it given the insight we're given into how they work is that if they didn't choose to put themselves in human bodies there's no way you could argue them away from their viewpoint because they just think so differently the only thing that really i don't know like how it would have gone if they hadn't put themselves into physical bodies like i feel like that was the downfall of their plan overall but it was the physical bodies that made them vulnerable whereas otherwise they would not have been and that's scary to me yeah to follow up with Amy's question, where would you place them in character alignment chart? Lawful evil, lawful neutral, etc. Is it that they are so fundamentally alien that it doesn't apply? It's interesting because I think what Pratchett is going for is the idea that they are neutral, lawful. Like they are sort of this force of absolute order. But they don't really come across that way. Like even in other books when they show up and they're trying not to give themselves a personal pronoun it still feels like they have too much personality for that to be totally true. I know this isn't a, on the alignment chart, but I feel like they're almost chaotic lawful. Yeah, I, I get what you mean by that. There is weird mix of things, aren't they, where they don't quite come across as totally lawful. I mean, again, I think this is why the, the Matrix analogy is so good, because the programs have a purpose, but they're not necessarily entirely lawful. Like, they do have to follow rules, but they also have personalities and they want things on occasion. Um, when they go wrong or because they're smart enough to be independent. And I feel like the auditors are like that too. So they're definitely lawful, but I don't know if they're evil. Like what they want is certainly evil from a human perspective, but they're not human. So maybe it is that they're too alien. Hmm. So from the Overlondon Project by Instagram, what would you use Bonsai Mountains for if you had some? That is a good question. And uh, a shout out to say hi to the Over London Project, another podcast, uh, which looks really cool. I hadn't heard of you folks before. So thanks for sending us a question. 
I love the idea of them. The most obvious answer would be like a paperweight, but I feel like that seems a waste. I'd have it on my desk. And you just, you know, get out a magnifying glass and look at the tiny little goats climbing up and down it and grow some little trees off the top. It'd be cool. I'd take some really silly photos with perspective issues. <laughs> but the joke <laughs> that is, is that good. there's no perspective issue. Good use. <laughs> there is, um, there's a, uh, I think it's just, I think it is actually called Mountain, but there's a software toy that is kind of like a bonsai mountain. Like there's a little rocky sort uh, yeah. of mountain thing yeah. that just grows trees on it. And it's an app, I think. Play with it. So the crystal ones that like they had in the 90s when it grows crystal trees all over. Oh, know. yeah. Those are cool. They're due for a resurgence. They're very good. I feel like 90s hippie stuff in general. Bring it back. It's gonna come Dolphin around. massages. I grew up near Byron <laughs> Bay, you folks. You can have it. I've, I've had enough of it for a lifetime. <laughs> it's fine. All right. So next question is from One Chocolate Teapot by Instagram. Nanny Og and Susan meet in this book. What other characters from different story arcs would you like to see interact? And also, how do you think Granny and Susan would get on? I think we kind of addressed that. So the immovable object mm. meets the unstoppable force. Like, yeah. If they were trying to achieve the same thing, it might work out for a brief time. Um, I feel like they would have to kind of trick themselves into thinking each of them was the one in control of the situation. Mm. Mm. So they'd kind yeah. of really bounce off each other really hard and then sort of maybe if they were trying to work towards the same goal, gradually kind of go, well, the other person's actually, you know, an idiot. So I'm kind of allowing myself to be in this partnership with them for the moment. Yeah. You need Nanny Og to like run interference, yes. I think. <laughs> yeah. But who else would we like to meet from the different storylines? I could do a whole podcast on just this. Yeah. But maybe we should. This is a good discussion point. I do love having cameos in, in Discworld books from other major characters and to talk about Monstrous Regiment again, there's like all these kind of lovely and, and they become quite sad cameos from various Ankh Morpork characters who appear and meet the, the Monstrous Regiment throughout the story and it's kind of because they're kind of in, on this almost doomed mission, these these main characters, it becomes this kind of these moments of like light and safety in the story because you know who these people are and it's like, oh, you know, the Watcher here, they're going to make everything okay. Mm. And having those external perspectives on characters we know really well from a really different point of view, I always I always really love. Mm. Yeah, that is cool. I kind of feel like, yeah, it's hard to do like for an extended period. Like even even when it has happened, it's been a bit weird because the different subseries sort of have a different tone and direction to them. Like it's it's hard to necessarily mash them together. I do wish that we'd seen more of William DeWord because uh, mm. like I'd really liked him and his staff, Sakarissa as well. It'd be nice to see them come back and hang out with other people. And they do sort of crop up in little cameos, but they don't really meet anyone in a significant sense. Um, and in fact, I don't know that William hardly ever shows up. It's usually the others. I, also, I feel like it's just a good excuse to see more of characters that we liked that we didn't see much of. I would have loved Tepic to come back maybe at some point, even just a little cameo. Basically, you could just choose any two that haven't met and put them together and I would be thrilled. But I would, because I was using your answering time to think of mine as well. Um, <laughs> I reckon Mr. Tulip, you know, from The Truth. Yeah. Him after he's gone through his character development possibly if he didn't if you stop him just at the peak of his character development i'm just trying to spoil the other book of like what happens with his whole oh, we've story covered that one before so you, that's okay Okay, so spoilers if you haven't read the truth he dies at the end so if you could somehow like undie him and he's back in the plot or he's gone through that and he's been reincarnated as exactly himself having gone through character development mm -hmm. him with like anyone but like i think him paired up with vimes could be very interesting him with lucy could be interesting like him with like a 
a grounded, solid, ethical character, um, and him having come through his like horrifying, murdery, but like with ethics, that could be really interesting to see like where that went. Yeah. Okay. What about that was a really long journey to a not a very epic destination, but you know. Sybil and Nanny. Oh my oh, god. Yeah. Now you're yes. talking. All right. I'd read an entire oh. spin-off like tangent of this. <laughs> Super team up. Love it. Who's the butler? Like the really good butler that Vimes has? Oh, Wilkins. Yeah, I'd like to see him. Like, actually, no, I'm just. I just want to see a prequel book or his own book. That's. I don't mind who he meets. <laughs> like so Young Alfred, the TV yeah. show about Alfred Pe- <laughs> oh, Pennyworth. I think it's called. Yeah. Yeah, that could be fun. All right, we could spend way too much time on this, um, so we're going to have to move on, unfortunately. (laughs) Yes. Yes. From Molokov via Discord, what auditor trap would stop you in your tracks? I can start on this one. I can't think of a great example, but there's times, like, I don't know if you've sat multiple choice exams, where there'll be one where you can only circle one thing, but two are correct, or none of them are correct, and you have to circle one of them, because it's the phrasing of it gone wrong. I've come across those situations where I'll just sit there for five minutes being like, this doesn't make sense. It's not logical. And I know I have to circle something, but I can't circle two things or I can't circle none of the things. And like Which yeah, one of these like, is a type of cheese and they're all cheeses? Oh, yeah. yeah exa- that's, a, that's a great one. Like, that, would, that would break me. <laughs> or oh, or those, um, those ones where you um, they like circle everything that's a stop sign. I, I got one of those recently where it was like a picture of like a streetscape and it was like, there was a big stop sign um, to show that you're not a robot and it was like covering like six of the boxes or whatever but there was also a traffic light with the red light on and i was like it's a sign that's telling you to stop but it's not the obvious sign that says stop on the thing so is that a stop sign or is that a trick so that like broke me as well maybe i'm a robot I'm not <laughs> sure, but... <laughs> i didn't want to be the one to say it uh... <laughs> but yeah so yeah the cheese one and also circle the stop sign yeah, I've I've certainly tried to fill out forms online where the question and the answers did not really match up. And any time where it's like, well, none of those are accurate for me, I refuse to answer that. Like, that just makes me cross. <laughs> so I think I would get angry not answer like that. Any non-binary person attempting to navigate any sort of government bureaucracy uh, probably is going yeah, through one trying huge to fill order out trap. The census. The census. Yeah. Oh, God. Oof. Yeah, the worst. I'm just going to start. Every time I come across an order trap, I'm going to start putting them up on the Twitter because I, <laughs> I come across them quite a lot, I think. And I should, yeah. Well, this okay. is breaking my brain. So, yeah. Or like when it's like <laughs> the diagonal of the stop signs going over just like the tiniest millimeter of the corner of a square. Does that count? Like, because it is technically the stop <laughs> sign. But if you saw that in isolation, you wouldn't know it's a stop sign. Okay. <laughs> oh, I do that. I do that with those. Are you a robot things? Yeah. Yeah. We're all robots. All right. <laughs> Before we both like, you know, explode. it's not. You know, it's not which squares you <laughs> click on that it uses to determine your behavior. Is it how long it is? It's watching you. It's, the- yeah, it, it's <laughs> analyzing all kinds of things that you do. Oh. I don't like that. I reject that information. It's too much. All right. <laughs> Um, so the next question comes from Ian Banks via Discord. In a similar vein to Chaos leaving before the rest of the Horsemen got famous, what other famous groups slash lists might have had members leaving prematurely? I mean, for starters, Chaos is still here. He's on my desk right now. But I, yeah. I know that's not what you mean. <laughs> We're always talking about your cat. That's true. Yeah, I love this question because I was thinking about this while I was reading the book because it's just such an irresistible gag. I reckon there was probably a fourth fate. You know, there's like the three fates or the three aspects of fate. There's like Lotho, Lachesis, and Cl- oh, I always get the names wrong. But, you know, there's the young one who spins the threads and the middle one who measures them and the old one who cuts them. Like, maybe there was a fourth one who dyes them cool colours or something. Chucks it in the bin. 
He chucks it, recycles it, you know, (laughs) wads it up again into a ball so it can get given back to the first one. That would be cool. I feel like the deadly sins. That could be. Oh, yeah. Yeah, a good one. What's the eighth deadly sin? Um, Is it like being not punctual? Tardiness. (laughs) (laughs) That's why it's not there. I feel like there's a Discworld joke about this, right? Well, there's also like the joke, well, it's not a joke, it's like part of the legend about how, you know, like the Chinese zodiac or the um, 12 signs of animals. Mm-hmm. Um, and the story goes, I think I've said this before, is the cat was supposed to be one of them because it's weird that there's like a dragon, but not a cat. Because <laughs> like a dragon, in theory, does not exist, but all the other animals exist. But a cat, which is very common and would have been around then, not one of the animals, is because they don't care and just slept through it. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't turn like, up. Well, they're asked to all show up to a place, and the cat's like, nah. <laughs> I mean, accurate. I've truncated that story quite a lot, but um, <laughs> that's kind of like, it feels like that's a famous group where, like, someone very obvious got left out. Totally. This one comes from Lachlan via Discord. Is the vague feeling of time going really slowly as well as really quickly in the last two years due to time travel shenanigans? God, I hope so. <laughs> oh, no. And I hope it's been uh, put to good use. I feel like it's in another book where this is discussed more explicitly, you know, and this is the old gag about time being relative because sometimes it feels like an hour takes forever and other times a a whole month passes in the blink of an eye. Well, yeah, it's not, I don't think you need time travel for this. (laughs) All right. Well, I feel like the answer to that is a unified yes, (laughs) maybe, sort of. Unified kind Um, of, ugh. uh, Yeah. (laughs) Not directed at you, Lachlan, just to be clear. The time leanness of it all. Yeah. All right. So our final question is from Sven via Discord. In your surprise slash secret garden, which surprises would you include? It's just really hard to top the fifth surprise. (laughs) It is, isn't it? The fifth surprise is just sort of like undone, like any potential. Like it's just ruined surprises forever. You can't do better than that. Yodeling stick insect also very good, but yeah. I think I would have a thing where all of your friends jump out and shout surprise. I was literally about to say that <laughs> with a birthday cake. <laughs> oh my God. When it's not your birthday, yeah. What if it's something like the tr- like you you go into the garden and you you find out that your life up to this point has been a lie, like it's just like the Truman Show. <laughs> this is not your mother. <laughs> Well, that's kind of what happens to Lobsang, right? Yeah, but, like, is is it actually true or is it not? Like, which part's the surprise? Like, do you think you get quite a few surprises out of that one? Sort of yeah, several of the surprises. <laughs> yeah. That's a great... I'm going to be thinking about that for a while because there's a lot of good options for surprises. That's I wonder true. what ones he rejected from his, like, his own list of surprises in the garden because it was limited to surprises that could be found in a garden. <laughs> Well, That's I mean, true. surely anything that wouldn't normally be found in a garden would be a surprise. <laughs> like, you go into the garden and there's, like, I don't know, an oven. <laughs> like, Are you what's... expecting surprises, though? Like, so, well, like... The, it's the genius of the fifth surprise. <laughs> there's no surprise. No, no, that's not it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm. I don't know. We could top that. And, look, it is traditional for us to end with a question from Sven. Thank you, Sven. Uh, we're so glad to have you back on board <laughs> with your questions. But, I, yeah, I think that brings us to the end of the episode. Ben, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This has been so much fun. Yeah, it was a real blast. I'm just, I can't put my enthusiasm into one word at the moment. I'm just, my brain, it's just, I'm still on the order to trap. I'm sorry. <laughs> if people want to find out more about you, what are you up to at the moment and where can they find your work? 
Uh, Twitter's probably the easiest place to find out what I'm doing. I'm, I do a whole range of things, write and organize various queer community things and a bunch of other bits and pieces. I'm on Twitter at Ben C. Riley, R-I-L-E-Y. So follow me there for nonsense and updates. The best thing to follow anyone for, as far as I'm concerned. Thank you to you for listening to the podcast. Thank you if you're a subscriber. Uh, that keeps us going, lets us make the podcast the way we want without having to put ads in it or or do anything else that's really helpful to us. Now, I've just time-sliced my way into the future, and I can tell you that, unfortunately, this interminable lockdown in Melbourne is not ending quite yet. So we have decided to take it easy on ourselves next month, and you as well, and we are going to read a short story. Another non-Discworld one, we're saving the Discworld ones for hopeful live shows. We do still have some hope for the future, but the next one we'll be reading is Once and Future. His Arthurian story published in a 1995 collection just titled Camelot, but you can find it in a blink of the screen. If you've got questions about that, use the hashtag Pratchat49. And yes... The next episode after that will be our 50th, and we are planning something a little special. We'll tell you more about that on the social media and on our website in the near future. And you can contact us at chat at pratchatpodcast.com if you want to send us any questions for future episodes or tell us what we should do or just say hello. That'd be nice. We love hearing from you. It's great. Thank you once again for listening. And... Until last time, or next time, until we skip next time, until next, until we do this time, look, just, just, every second counts. You've been listening to Pratchat, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast with Pratchatters Elizabeth Flux, Ben McKenzie, that's me, and guest Ben Riley. Pratchat is produced and edited by me, with music by David Ashton of Sample and Hold Studios. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pratchat Podcast, and listen to past episodes and support the production of new ones via PratchatPodcast.com. Join the conversation for this episode using the hashtag Pratchat48. Pratchat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears, like the Doctor Who podcast Splendid Chaps and time travel comedy series Night Terrace. To find out more, visit SplendidChaps.com. Dot com.